0: Hi, everyone. So this week we're releasing a previous episode. It's Mark Andreessen from August 16, 2021, one of the first podcasts we did. Uh, we've been releasing CSBI podcast episodes bi-weekly for uh, just over two years now. And it's come to the point where I simply can't keep up with the schedule, uh, given my writing and other commitments. Uh, to be more precise, if I could, if I really tried, uh, but I don't want to be in a position where I feel forced to put something out there no matter what in order to meet the schedule. Uh, quality is important as my time is important, I'm sh- and I'm sure it is for all the listeners out there. Uh, so I'm going to be cutting back on podcasting, maybe releasing a few more old episodes like we're doing today, um, and still releasing new ones when there is someone I really want to talk to. So thanks for everyone's support over the last few years. And without further ado, here's my discussion with Mark Andreessen. Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here with Mark Andreessen. Uh, Mark, how are you?
1: Hey, hey, good morning, Richard. How are you?
0: I'm doing excellent. Thanks for joining us. I, I was looking at your uh, uh, your schedule that you posted online a while back, and it's uh, you know it's very busy. So I'm you know I'm happy that you're making time for us. Um, how do you describe, you know most people, for most people, you're uh, uh, you know you're not, gonna, you're not gonna need any introduction, but how do you describe what you do? What, what are you most proud of in your past? And can you just tell people a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, so I've had you know three, three phases in my career, the way I think about it. So phase one was as an engineer uh, and software developer. Um, and where I was, you know, lucky enough to be involved in the sort of formation of what, of what we now call the internet. Um, and so originally with the web, um, and then the web browser, and then uh, a company called Netscape in the 1990s, uh, (laughs) um, that used to be famous. Um, and, um, some people still remember. Um, and, you know, we, we, we kind of helped, um, you know, we, we kind of helped what, what we now view as the consumer internet and the sort of business, you know, internet, e-commerce, all these things kind of, you know, come into, come into being. Um, in the 90s. And then uh, phase two um, uh, of my career was as an entrepreneur and, and, and Escape was my first company, and then I had two other companies myself, uh, as I was a co-founder of after that. Um, and then that ultimately led into my third career as an investor and venture capitalist. Um, and actually my fourth startup uh, is my current firm, Andrew and Horowitz, which is a venture capital firm um, that invests you know very broadly uh, across technology of many different kinds. Including a lot of internet uh, uh, technologies for sure, but also biotech and cryptocurrency and blockchain and, and um, you know many many other areas of technology. And we we become a very active uh, investor in the space. So so I've kind of seen so far you know kind of this industry in this world kind of from you know from from the perspective of a builder, uh, a technology builder, a company builder, and now a, now now a financier.
0: Yeah, so I mean, a venture capitalist. I think that's a term many people hear, and then you know they think it's such a common term that they often don't ask what it actually means or what it actually entails. I think a lot of our listeners are uh, journalists or academics, so it's probably not a world that they're familiar with. Can you sort of explain what do you do as a venture capitalist? Yeah,
1: so in some ways, it's the most cutting edge um, area of finance, in that we're you know we're 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 funding the new things. You know, we're funding the new technologies. we're, We're making we're basically we make the bets on very fringe uh kind of ideas um many of which don't work um you know we kind of work with uh typically very idiosyncratic you know strongly willed uh iconoclastic uh entrepreneurs um you know who are not necessarily the kinds of people who you'd want running you know a giant you know a a big bank or something but are the right people to build a new technology company um and so there's there's a real leading edge component of it um on the other hand it, it is also kind of the original form of investing right like you know when christopher columbus wanted to mount the expedition uh, you know to uh i guess what he thought was india turned out to be america um you know he went to uh what is it queen isabella and she was basically his venture capitalist right and she she basically you know fronted him the money um you know when the puritans who uh you know kind of uh, settled uh you know north america you know wanted to set up their 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 place here they they actually spent 20 years in, in the netherlands actually effectively raising venture capital uh to be able to finance their their journey um, you know, there's actually this term in venture capital called carry. Uh, you'll hear so called carried interest, um, which is the term that's basically the profit sharing that, uh, that a VC like us gets when, it, when an investment works. Um, that term carried interest actually derives from the whaling industry, like, you know, 500 years ago, 400 years ago. Um, uh, the relationship between uh, a boat captain who was going to go out and try to hunt and kill a whale, um, and the uh, investors who financed his uh, expedition. Uh, was uh literally structured like 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 the deals we do um, and the 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 profit sharing was called carried interest because it was literally the percentage of the whale that the captain and the crew got to keep it was literally the percentage of the whale that the ship would carry back to the <laughs> back to the port and so you know even even industries kind of that old and you know in many ways long forgotten uh were're we're structured we're structured on a very similar model and so you know, it's sort of the true financing of risk, um, uh, in the economy. And I, you know, I, I would argue it, you know, it, it plays a, a vital role, it, not just in the delivery of, of new technologies, right? Um, and, you know, a recent example, it wasn't one of our companies, but, you know, this company, Moderna, that, you know, sort of innovated this idea of mRNA vaccines, you know, it, it, it is a, it was a classic, you know, venture capital backed company. Like that company would not have existed without venture capital, that technology, you know, these vaccines would not exist without venture capital. So, you know, so we, we we kind of keep the train running in terms of new technologies. Um, but you know, we we I would also argue we keep the the economy dynamic, right? We, you know, without venture capital, you would you would kind of have all economic activity over time consolidated into a very small number of big, you know, monopolies or oligopolistic companies. And and you know, there was a big fear in the American economy in the 50s and 60s, you know, that that was exactly what was happening to the American economy. And then you know, venture capital in its modern form really burst onto the scene in the 1970s, and it's really I think kept the American economy much more vital. Uh, and fresh than it than it would have been otherwise.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned the mRNA vaccine. I mean, it's one of those ideas. As I've been uh, thinking about academia and peer review and becoming disillusioned with it, and you know, reading people like uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who similarly, uh, you know, is very down on it. Uh, I think the mRNA. The story behind uh, the story behind that is the, that they couldn't even publish it in a journal right it was just something too new too weird and then the journal editors were like this is strange you know what they what they look for is incremental progress on something everybody knows uh and then you know you go to the market and you know it it tends to be the thing that works and potentially you know can transform medicine uh so so i've been thinking a lot about you know just incentive structures and you know I, i you know there's this idea that sort of you know, how, like, how do you think about sort of the relationship between sort of what, what venture capitalists do and then people sort of in the world of, uh, you know, how do I put this? The sort of the intellectual world where they're not, you know, they don't have as much skin in the game and, you know, Talib's terms. Do you, do you, do you see, do you like, do you understand what I'm saying that I, I sort of see it as like incentives are becoming much, much more fundamental to my worldview, especially as I become disillusioned with academia. Do, do you think that's a, you know, a good way to look at the world?
1: Yeah. So this is a really important topic and it's a very, very rich and deep topic that, that we think about a lot. So, so I, so I start with the disclaimer, basically saying that, you know, look, a lot of what we fund, a lot of the new technologies and companies that we fund, uh, you know, we do have to give credit um, uh, to, you know, sort of in, in a lot of cases, sort of decades of university level research and, you know, and often actually federally funded research, government funded research, uh, that kind of lead up to the point where we get to do what we do. And so, you know, the the technologies, for example, behind computer networking that ultimately resulted in the internet, right, were were funded by you know DARPA starting in like the nineteen fifties, right, and it wasn't really you know for another thirty years or something into the eighties and into the nineties that they kind of became fully commercially viable, and that, and that you know then entrepreneurs like like you were able to kind of pick up the ball and run with it and, and sort of help you know turn 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 those technologies into something that normal people could use. So. So, so, so there is like, yeah, so I guess to say, I, we do have to give credit to the fact that, and, and look, you know, mRNA builds on, you know, decades of, of federal funding of genomics research um, and university level, uh, you know, work in genomics. And so that, you know, we wouldn't have a lot of these new technologies if there hadn't been any basic science. Um, and then that takes me to kind of the second part of the observation, which is, um, you know, basic science is very hard to fund uh, for, with a sort of purely capitalistic mindset um and you know <laughs> i say that as a as a huge advocate of a purely capitalistic mindset it's just it's hard to fund basic research um uh w- w- with that and and a big part of that is just some of it is you don't know what you're going to get out of basic research um you know it's, sometimes it takes 20 years or something to figure out like what the actual real world you know kind of products are going to be but you know the other thing is like it it, can, it it just the time scale involved right so so the way to think about it basically is what we do is we can finance companies um, from, um, basically the way I think about what we do is we, we sort of finance sort of, ad, sort of, um, sort of advanced research into development productization. Um, and the sort of time frame that our companies can operate on between inception and when they ship a viable product is sort of five to seven years. Right. Um, and, and so, and what you tend to find is if there's something where it's like, okay, there's a new technology and I know it's going to result in a viable product, but it's going to be 10 or 15 or 20 years out. It's very hard to do that from a venture capital uh, mindset. And the reason is, it's it's actually because it's very hard to do that from a company building standpoint, because if you staff a company with, you know, employees, you know, you need a team. And if you staff it and there, there's nothing to show for it after five to seven or, you know, maybe eight or nine years, like at some point you'll lose that team. And so you just, you just, because, and you know, these are very talented people. They can go work at other companies. And so it's just, it's, it's very hard to make the timescales match for the sort of 20 year, you know, kind of intellectual journeys. Um, you know, look. That said, something has gone, you know, very wrong in the basic research complex that we do have, right, in the universities and with the federal funding system. Um, and we know that something has gone very wrong uh, because of the replication crisis, right? And so, uh, you know, John, yeah, uh, uh, at Stanford, uh, you know, wrote this now classic paper, uh, like uh, in the mid '90s, where he basically uh, made the case that, you know, fifty percent, he basically said fifty percent of published uh, research is is uh, is fake. Uh, is, is what's called non-reproducible, which means like you, you can't basically reproduce the same results, which means like you can't do anything with the research. It's basically fake. Um, and, you know, and interestingly, he was studying biomedical research, right? Which you would think is an area of research where people would be very focused on getting things right. Um, you know, it subsequently turned out that he might have been underestimating the problem, right? The amount of fake research, even if it feels like biomedicine might be as, um, uh, you know, as fake as up to 70%. Um, there's this other just amazing study that maybe we can link to for your listeners that it was, uh, it was a study of, uh, medical trials funded by a branch of the federal, uh, apparatus. It's, it's like heart and lung, whatever research. Um, and they, <laughs> it's this great chart that basically shows that, um, new medicines stopped working at the point when the funders of the research required the researchers to register their experiments ahead of time. Uh, And so basically, it's this chart that basically shows that for like 30 years or something, you had all of these new medicines coming out that like basically, uh, you know, in the research results were like, wow, this thing really works and it should be given to patients. And then there's this point where the research people running medical trials were forced to pre-register their hypothesis with the funding agency. And so they were forced to basically say up front, here's exactly what we're testing for. Here's exactly how we're going to measure the results. And subsequent to that point, basically, new, new medicines have stopped working. And, and the implication, you know, there's two possible interpretations of this, right? One is, um, you know, the, the low-hanging fruit argument, which is it used to be easier to make medicines that work. And now we've harvested the low-hanging fruit in science and technology, and now it's just harder to do it. And so maybe this is just a coincidence, right? The other explanation is those old medicines didn't work either, right? They, they, were, they were basically fake research results based on what's called data mining, right, or p-hacking. Um, you know in such a way that basically the you know the basically the result the the results are fraudulent, and then the implication is there are a lot of drugs on the market today that probably don't actually work and so anyway, like the whole complex of science right now is like in an existential crisis um like there you know this is a real real issue, and there are you know there there's now by the way there's a generation of scientists who now specialize in basically um you know sort of uh, pointing this out and analyzing it uh you know Andrew gelman and a whole bunch of others um and you know like, well, I'll give you. I had, a, I had a. I'll just give you an example. I had a conversation with a, the a longtime head of one of the big federal funding agencies for healthcare research. He who is also a very accomplished entrepreneur, and I said, you know, do you really think it's true that, you know, fifty percent or seventy percent of biomedical research is uh, is fake? And he's, you know, this is a guy who spent his life kind of in this world, uh, and he said, oh no, that's not true at all. He said it's ninety percent. Um yeah.
0: and,
1: right. And I was like, holy shit, like what do you like, you know, and I was I was like flabbergasted. I was like, what do you mean ninety percent? And he said, Well, look, he's like, you know, there's this thing called Sturgeon's Law. He's like, look, ninety percent of everything is shit, right? Like, which is literally this thing called Sturgeon's Law, 90% of everything is bad. Like so ninety percent of every novel written is bad, you know, every novel, you know, novels, ninety percent of music, ninety percent of art, ninety percent of everything is bad. Mm-hmm. And so he said, Look, you just need to realize he said basically his his analysis was in any given field of medical experimentation, uh, biomedical development, um, and this is going to be true of any field, right? Um, there's, like, five labs total in the world that are, like, really good at what they're, what they're doing, and they're doing really cutting-edge work. And this is also true of, like, quantum computing, and this is true of, you know, you, you pick any field of advanced technology you want. Uh, and he said, so basically he said those five labs have, like, a pretty good shot at doing interesting work, and some of that is going to, you know, reproduce and some of it isn't. And there are issues even in those labs. He said, once you get out of the top five labs, basically, it's all it's basically just like make work. It's its like incremental marginal improvements at best and basically just a complete waste of time otherwise. Um, and I said, well, you know, good God, like, why does the other 90 percent continue to get funded if, if, if you know this? And he's like, well, you know, there's all these universities, right? There are all these professors. They have tenure. There are all these journals. You know, there's this whole system. Right. Um, and people have been promised lifetime employment. Anyway, long-winded way of basically saying, yeah, we, we have, I think, pretty serious structural, uh, and incentive, uh, problems, uh, in the research complex. Um, and then by the way, I would argue, like, everything I just described, I'm just talking about the U.S., um, you know, I would argue that, like, the U.S. is the best case scenario, uh, mm-hmm. everywhere else is almost certainly worse. Yeah. And so we, we, we have a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So when you, when you say that the, you know, the five best labs are doing something, you know, doing things that are potentially important and uh, interesting. Do you think the limiting factor here is just human talent? Because when I read, you know, my, my field is a social science, I read political scientists and, you know, anthropologists and the typical one writing a hundred years ago, 50 years ago was just so much more insightful than the typical uh, person in these fields today. And part of it is just there's a lot more people in these fields today. And on average, they're just not going to be as good. And the people who became, you know, who went into these fields, you know, 50, 100 years ago uh, had something more to say We're, you know, we're doing more interesting things. Is it, is it, do you think it's just that? How much of it is just human talent and how much of it is just uh, the limit is uh, just, you know, the way we've set things up?
1: Yeah, so I think there's a real argument. And, you know, this is kind of the most uncomfortable form of argument that people can make these days. But there, there is a real argument that there is just a there are just a certain number of like super elite people. Um, you know, there are just a certain number of people who are going to be like really good scientists. Um, and it's just not that many. Um, and, you know, it's some magical combination of intelligence and, you know, industriousness and, um, you know, uh, yeah, honesty, um, right, and integrity, um, and then curiosity, and then, you know, ability to recruit and build a team and then ability to raise money. You know, it's sort of this, you know, it's a lot like being an. it's, it's in some ways, you know, being a top researcher is like being an entrepreneur, like you have to actually pull all these different kind of elements together. Um, and there's just only a certain number of people who can do that. And so like I, I think there is something to that for sure. And then, of course, by the way, the implication of that is like, boy, from a societal standpoint, like we better really know who those people are, right? Mm-hmm. And we better really like give them room to run, right? and we and we really better make sure that you know they're not driven out. Um, right? Like but, right, you know, because what's the worst thing if somebody's really truly a member of the elite, like and they're they're capable of generating elite level results, like you know, if you wanted to demotivate them and drive them out of the field, right, what would you do? right? Which is you would surround them with mediocrity, Mm. right? And you would, you would drown them in bullshit basically. And so, so I think there's an element of that. I think there's something else though. And I think you put your finger on it right up front with incentives. Um, So I think one way of thinking, I've been thinking a lot about this recently. So I I think one way of thinking about this is basically, right. It's like, there was this wave in the, I don't know, call it between probably the very late 1800s. And then in the first, what, two or three decades of the 1900s. And it was kind of, you know, progressivism at that time. And then it was, you know, Wilsonian whatever they call it, Wilsonianism and Wilsonism. And then it was, um, you know, the, um, you know, all the time, motion studies and factories. And then it was the rise of bureaucracy and administration. And then it was the rise of, you know, kind of, you know, the, the, you know, kind of all the different ways that people have learned to organize military efforts being applied in, in other fields like business and academia. And then it was mass media, mass communication. You had this, you had this sort of, ri- sort of rise of systems, Right, and so it's like, and this is when, like, you know, the university system, as we know and under, understand it today, kind of got organized and kind of, you know, put into place. It's it's when, you know, kind of the factory system that we know and understand. It's when, you know, kind of giant, we learn how to structure giant bureaucracies. And so it's like we built these institutions, like we built and codified basically these, you know, the technical term is, you know, is, is games, right? That, and games not in the sense of entertaining sense, but games in the sense of like I don't know, game theory or something. Right, where it's like we built these games, we built these systems that then people insert into. All right. And if I, you know, if I insert into a you know low-level position at a giant company, I'm able to play this game over 30 years to rise up and become the CEO. If I, you know, um, you know, enter as a middle, you know, low level diplomat in the UN, I'm able to rise up over time and become secretary general. You know, if I if I insert as a you know, grad student in a university research lab, I'm able to rise up over time, you know, to your point, become a principal investigator and be, be running my own lab. Right. And, and, and then, you know, you've got universities, you've got this whole, you know, that you've got the journal game, right? With, with publications, right? Um, you know, and this weird thing where you, you, you get scored based on the journal articles that you publish in these journals that nobody can afford to buy, <laughs> right? Right. That, that, um, you know, that nobody, you know, very few people read. Um, you know, but that's somehow how you get scored. Um, and so, or, you know, the tenure, right? The, the, the tenure track, um, and how you kind of navigate through that game. And so we, we put this, this set of games in place and we did, we put these games in place because we thought we were systematizing a way of achieving excellence. Yeah. Right. If you go back and you read the people in the 1920s, you know, like Vannevar Bush, like, for example, is, you know, FDR science advisor who kind of basically codified modern university research in the 40s. Um, you know, he, he thought that, that he's basically creating an optimized system for maximum output of high quality research. But it's it's the incentives problem to your point, which is basically and every, anybody who knows the business knows this, which is like anytime you define uh, every time you define a metric, immediately people will start to gain the metric. Right. And so if, if you tell me as a researcher in university that I need to publish journal articles, right, I'm going to publish journal articles. Now, you know, will anybody read them? Right. Will anybody cite them? Will anybody care? Like, will do they actually move the field ahead? You know, maybe, maybe not. Right. Um, and so forth and so on through all these different games. And so I, I think it's possible that, like, we spent as a society, like 50 years kind of assembling these systems in these games, um, you know, in the first half of the 20th century. And then we spent the last half of the 20th century basically gaming the games. Right, and so and 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 and, so, and you you see this just in the sense of like you, you, this sense of kind of these institutions going moribund, right? You know these institutions these institutions broadly that were created in the first half of the 20th century, just like generating worse and worse results. You know the the response to worse and worse results is to fund them even more lavishly, mm-hmm. right? And so they're you know this you're sort of in this loop where they're they're headed in the wrong direction. Um, and then, you know, I would say finally, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's the sort of adverse selection component that I alluded to. And, and and honestly, like in in my day job, I really benefit from this, which is, you know, a lot of our founders, right. Are people who 50 or 75 or hundred years ago, um, I think would have stayed in academia, right. As an example, right. Or I think they would have, you know, worked in big businesses their whole lives. Right. And so I think they might've, you know, stayed at Stanford their whole life or they might have stayed at IBM their whole life or something like that. Um, but now they just, you know, the, if you're really like sharp and young and hungry and aggressive and ambitious, um, you know, you look around you at the, I hear this all the time, right? I hear this all the time from, from our founders is I looked around and what I saw was just like incredibly depressing. And I realized I had to get out of there. <laughs> right. And I had to get into a position where I could build my own thing because I actually want to be part of a high performance environment that doesn't tolerate all this bullshit. Um, and so, you know, I guess I'd say everything I'm describing is kind of depressing from a societal standpoint, but it's, 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 you know, it's, it's the full employment act for what, what I do day to day. To day. And, and you know, look, maybe, maybe that's fair. Like maybe, maybe that's just where we're at um, is, you know, we could have a long conversation about this, but like, is it even worth trying to do institutional reform, you know, at this point? Um, or is the, is the correct answer just to build institutions and, you know, venture capital startup formation is a way to build new institutions. You know, this far from perfect, but like it seems to work quite well. And maybe we actually just need like a much more revolutionary mindset, uh, when it comes to trying to build new institutions.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, inst- you're right. I mean, it does seem like we're just throwing more money. At the problem, I mean, we just had a f- you know a few infrastructure bills that are just massive by historical standards, and there seems to be a you know a lot more interest in uh, uh, throwing money at infrastructure uh, than there is figuring out why we you know have more difficulty building infrastructure at a reasonable price than any other country in the world. I think before you cut big checks for that, I think you wanna you'd want to figure that out that part out first. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean. the, the yeah, when you talk about gaming the metrics, you know it's it's funny because sometimes I'll look at um it seems like some fields are particularly bad at this, so I'll look at some people, somebody who has like a you know who's like a medical doctor, or like a top research university, and I'll look at their Google Scholar, you know, makes it so convenient for you, and they'll have like you know a publication every two weeks or so like you know uh you know uh. Thirty publications in a year. They're one of twenty authors on each publication. <laughs> it's just like, right. you know, how carefully are you looking at each one of these papers? Yeah, I don't, I don't know yeah. if, you're, if this is is this is real work or you're just you know shuffling paper or paper around and you know uh, adding another line to your uh, you know to your CV. Uh, yeah so i mean how how optimistic are you you know there's ways things can get reformed i mean so like you think about uh the, you know the taxi the uh, taxi drivers right so there there was these people they just bought these uh, medallions they had special rights they could overcharge everybody and th- that existed for a while and then nobody passed a law that says okay anyone can become a taxi driver what happened was uber came around and they actually violated the law in a lot of places right they weren't supposed to do what they did right the laws were there to protect the, ta- uh, the taxi drivers in place but then they disrupted the industry. Now the industry is not doing so, uh, so well. Uh, same, you know, something similar is happening with Airbnb. So when I think about the things that have been disrupted recently. It seems to be always a case of just technology coming out, coming along, uh, and it's hard to think of you know places in recent history where. There was just a vested interest. It was powerful. And then we just passed a law or we passed a regulation and we opened things up. Is technology pretty much the only way to do this now? Or can there be, you know, something? Can we get something good through politics or regulations?
1: Yeah. So what you see that my experience is the closer you get to the government, like the closer you just get to like kind of seeing how the government operates in conjunction with any given industry. And, you, you know, you gave two great examples there, which is real estate and transportation. But we could have the exact same discussion about national services. We could have the same discussion about healthcare, like many other many other topics, <laughs> by the way, housing, um, uh, you know, education for sure. Um uh, you know, the closer you get, basically what you see, and this this is not a new observation. Like this is, you know, James Burnham probably made this observation originally, um, and uh, Joseph Schumpeter also talked about it a fair amount in the fifties. But, but and then you know, there's this whole field of public choice economics that talks about this. But basically, what you see on the ground is just regulatory capture, like over and over and over and over again. Um, and so, and, and it's 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 actually interesting. It's it, what you actually see. I think is you actually see kind of regulatory capture in both directions, um, which is the the companies the, the companies that gain power, um, the economic entities that gain power in these industries early. They 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 capture their regulator. Right. Um, and so they capture the government regulator. And basically what they end up doing is they basically end up implementing regulations in their industry that have the effect of basically cementing their market positions in place and preventing new competition. And the, the taxi medallion example is a, is a classic example of that. Um, so you, you for, and that's sort of the classic definition of regulatory capture, right, is the, the, the companies capturing the government. Um, but you also see the other side of it kind of at the same time, which is you see the government capturing the companies. Right. And the, and the sort of, um, you know, the, this gets into maybe the Burnham part a little bit more, which is basically it's like, you know, <laughs> I'll give you an example. You know, take the take take the three big banks. Right. So take JP Morgan Chase, Gold, uh, uh, Bank of America and Citibank. Right. In, in in 2007, 2008, these were the, quote, too big to fail banks. Right. And what everybody knew was the whole problem with the financial crisis um, is that the too big to fail banks are too big. Um, and so the obvious right answer is like we can never be you know, we can never tolerate having banks this big again because big banks mean systemic risk. And so, therefore, we have to make sure, you know, which is therefore required the bailouts. And and so we have to make sure this never happens again. Um, The regulatory reforms that followed, right, were codified in this bill called Dodd-Frank. You know, the the big banks, like, complained endlessly about how horrible Dodd-Frank was. But if you look at the results of Dodd-Frank, the issuance of new bank charters in the U.S. dropped to zero. Um, And then the three too-big-to-fail banks got much, much larger. Right and this is after all of the work that you know Senator Warren and like all these incredibly smart and animated and fired up people did like the result is the two big to fail banks today are much much larger and more systemically important than they were before like the the problem has been like greatly um, like uh, uh you know sort of um, uh, increased uh, the, the exact problem that the regulations was, were supposed to, was supposed to shut off and so you you kind of say from that okay then it's regulatory capture like part of that is those companies which have giant regulatory machines right you know you know literally tens of thousands of lawyers and compliance people and government you know relations people and you know huge uh, you know uh, you know political fundraising operations like part of that is they they've captured the government part of that is like those banks are now effectively I think de facto you know subunits of the treasury department right like they are very tightly integrated into the government um, you know the treasury department gets to basically tell them what to do on any given day they have to do it. Um, you know, I think one way to think about those three banks is they're no longer independent companies per se. You could more think of them just as the U S department of banking, right? Like, you know, if, if they were, if they were simply government agencies, if they were simply departments in the executive branch, like, would we experience anything differently in terms of market structure or customer service or anything? Um, what, do you,
0: what, do you, what do you think they're doing on behalf of that? I understand what the banks are getting from the government. What's the government getting from the banks?
1: They can arbitrarily, you know, they, they can arbitrarily control and manipulate the economy through the banks. You know, they, you know, this is, you know, the way the Federal Reserve implements their, their activity is through the, you know, the, the, the discount window through to the banks. Um, they can implement, um, you know, various kinds of political, and social, administrative policies. They, you know, they can decide, you know, deplatforming, de- 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 you know, kicking people off the financial system. Um, they can, um, you know, the U.S. Uh, sanctions regime. Which, by the way, I'm in favor of from a national security standpoint, I'm in favor of. But the U.S. sanctions regime is implemented through the banks, um, you know, uh, global development, all the, you know, all the national, all the global, you know, foreign aid, um, you know, all of the, um, uh, you, you know, the ability for the government to kind of wield financial soft power all, through the, all over the world. A lot of that is run through these banks. Um, and so it's just it's basically like they're, they're just they're, they're arms of state power. Um, and, and again, like it, it, not even so much, you know, you could you could you could take a critical view of this, but I don't even mean to be particularly critical. It's just like uh, uh, observationally, this is what they well And in fact, we saw this during the we saw this during the financial crisis itself, because like how was policy made during the financial crisis? It was literally like a handful of senior officials with a handful of bank CEOs sitting in a room and deciding what they were going to do. Right. And, you know, there's that famous scene from the book and the movie, you know, where all the bank CEOs are called to Washington and they're all basically told that they're all going to take federal bailouts. Right. And there's, you know, some of the bank CEOs are like, basically, you know, screw you. I'm not taking a bailout. I don't need one. And the secretary of the treasury at the time was like, nope, you're all taking them. And, you know, sure enough, they all took them. And so it's a more direct level of control um, than I think, you know, than I think people imagine. Um, and, and again, I'm just using I'm just picking banking as an example. Right. It's like, you know, if Harvard were the U.S. Department of, you know, um, uh, expertise you know, call it, would, you know, would, would anything really change? You know, if, if, Brookings, if the Brookings Institute was the U S department of policy analysis, would anything really change? Mm-hmm. You know, if, any, if the New York times was the U S department of information, would anything really change? Right. right. And, and, and I think over time, you just, if, you know, I, you get applied to tech, if Google was the U S department of search, right. Like, like, does it, you know, would anything really change? And, and, and the, the, this is the, you know, this is kind of the Burnham argument, right. Which is, you know, the, the sort of regime is not just the formal government. Right, the regime is you know what the regime is the broader kind of um, you know kind of elite holding power, Um, and um, you know and that's expressed across a, a combination of governmental and non governmental entities, and then they just they end up getting very intertwined. Um, that, you know, I, I you know, it's a little bit of a sort, you know, talk to any VC or any entrepreneur, this is a sore spot. Cause like the way we experience this is just, you know, constantly kind of running up against this complex. Yeah. Um, and so we, you know, we have some for sure self-interest in pointing this out into hoping that, you know, over time it, it, uh, uh, you know, it, it, maybe gets a little bit less intense, but it's, it's pretty intense.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, with perform, you're always sort of pushing against the grain and people have a status quo bias and there's always, you know, concentrated interests, And I just try to think historically, like when that sort of bias towards the status quo has. Been overcome, and it's usually you know some kind of revolutionary ideology, like you know the communist take over or ISIS or the Taliban takes over, you know they knock down all the institutions, you know, pretty quickly. And you know, or you know, better case, we you know we you know we think more positively of you know decolonization. There has to be something that happens, right? There has to be sort of an external force that shakes things up. And you know, I think I think this is sort of what Curtis Yarvin gets at in his writings when he says you know revolution is easier. And reform um I, th- I guess the problem i see right now is there's a um you know i, I listen to the arguments of public choice theory and people uh, who believe in cost-benefit analysis and they make perfect sense to me um i don't see anyone you know ready to charge the barricades for those ideas is you know is the problem is there's just no sort of revolutionary ideology that's going to spur people to just uh just go and overcome whatever inertia there is in the system
1: well, so let me tell you what we do. So what we do is, I would say what we do is maybe a minor league version of what you're getting at, right? Um, and so, and this goes to your examples of like Uber and Airbnb. So what we do basically, I think about it basically as like, w- we run basically just a continuous flow of like X-Wing fighters up against the Death Star, right? Like, and so like, we are just like, and it's it's all of our startups. Like we're just constantly, we're funding these, these very fired up entrepreneurs with these very, you know, disruptive ideas. And I'll talk about disruption in a second, because it's really critical here, the theory of disruption, which is often mischaracterized. Um, but we find like all these disruptive startups, you know, we, we fund, we, we, I'll just give you an example today at our, at our firm, we have over 250 companies currently in our portfolio that we own 10% or more of. Right. And so think of it as like basically 250 X-Wing fighters um, you know, and they're, they are, you know, running sorties against the Death Star. Um, and, you know, and, and by the way, we, we know statistically what's going to happen. It's very clear in the data, which is basically half of them are going to get, you know, blown up, uh, on impact, like basically in, 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 top end venture capital, half the companies don't work. Um, and so we're, we're just going to like lose half of them. Um, and, and you know, look, for a variety of reasons, like some of them are just going to, you know, they're going to screw things up or whatever, but part of it is they're going to hit the, you know, kind of hit deflector shields of various kinds, um, and get blown up. Um, And then, you know, another quarter of them are going to generate kind of, you know, okay, but not great returns, which is to say they're going to do something kind of interesting and some, you know, useful, but not revolutionary. Um, And so it's really only the top quartile of the companies that we fund that are going to kind of punch out and do something, you know, really meaningful. You know, so out of the 250, call that, you know, whatever, whatever that number is, 70 or whatever, Um, or uh, what, 60, 60. Um, dangers of doing math math on the fly um, and then um you know within that set within that quartile there's like an upper you know whatever god willing upper 10 percent or whatever that are going to really kind of punch through um and are kind of you know going to really have the potential to change things um and so you know it's a high attrition rate right it's like a it's a what do they what do the social scientists say it's a biologist say it's what's case selected not R selected <laughs> right um and so, um, and, and look, our entrepreneurs, they all understand the nature of the challenge. They're all, you know, these are all their plans, by the way. This isn't us putting them up to it. Like, they, you know, they're, they're choosing to do this and they, they take the best run they can. By the way, in a lot of cases, you know, they may blow one up and they may come right back around and do another one and we might fund that next one, right? So you, you do get, you, you know, it's a game with multiple opportunities to play, which is great. Um, and so, you know, we just kind of get, get, get to run those. Um, those companies do, I think, exactly what you described in a lot of cases, which is they basically... They have to have some form of technological wedge, um, and I, I often kind of equate sort of technological wedge, economic wedge, kind of go hand in hand. But they, they need to have some kind of technological wedge. Like they need to have some claim that there's a technology change. You know, and you you gave two examples. Of this. Uber and Airbnb. It's both like okay, now that we have the web, and now that we have you know mobile phones, and we have GPS. And we have online, you know, payments and so forth and online reputation systems. Now all of a sudden we can do, you know, driver rider matching in cars or we can do, you know, housing guest matching in, in homes, you know, in a, in a, in a completely different way, which was never possible before, you know, basically smartphones and GPS and all these other technologies. And so, so our startups need to have this wedge to have a chance to kind of punch through. But then the other thing they do is, you know, it, they they do they they are quote unquote disruptive, and you know this word disruptive have, has gotten kind of a bad knock, um, you know, because it you know it because it, it sounds bad, right? This disruption sounds bad. It sounds like oh something was working and now it's going to get disrupted and now it's going to get worse. But you know the, the the reason we use the term disruption is because Clay Christensen, who wrote the book, you know, The Innovator's Dilemma, that kind of talks about this. You know, he kind of chose that word. And the, the the key thing in there that's very important to keep in mind is disruption of the form that our companies do it only works if consumers like it, right? Um, Uber only works, right, um, if drivers want to drive for it and if riders want to ride on it, right? Airbnb only works if people who own homes want to list, you know, their homes or rooms in their homes on Airbnb and only if guests want to stay in those homes. You know, it's all you know. Everything we do, by definition, it's it's purely optional, right? Be- people could just keep doing what they do; they don't have to change anything, right? Or they or they could try this new thing. Um, and so, I think that the, the argument I would make that that what we do is kind of a minor form of the kind of revolutionary change you're talking about is it's basically we couple this idea of sort of technological a technological wedge into the market, coupled with real consumer choice, uh, right? And then I would say finally you kind of couple it with this sort of the what is it the old Victor uh, Hugo that's the or is it you know, one of those guys who said the, "There's nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come." Um, like at some point, it just gets obvious that there's a better way to do things. Um, uh, there was a famous, you know, Uber's not one of our companies, but they they had we were, we were involved in Lyft, which is you know kind of the other the other very successful company in the space. But Uber <laughs> Uber had this very clever strategy we found out about later. Um, this very clever strategy, which is you know they they would go insert into a city, and they as you said they were like nominally in violation of the whatever taxi limo regulations in you know the city. Um, so, uh, what they would do is they would focus on having a high amount of supply, which is to say a lot of cars and drivers sort of on standby, um, in the, within a couple minutes of city hall. Right. Um, and so they would have this thing where if you were a staffer in city hall, or if you were a city council person in city hall, you could be, you know, sitting in the chamber, you know, during the afternoon fulminating against these, you know, evil Silicon Valley, people doing this, that, and the other thing. And then you could go right outside and punch into your Uber app and get a ride in 30 seconds. And, you know, the driver would happily take you home, <laughs> right? And if it wasn't you doing that, it was your young staff doing that, or it was your kids doing that, right? Um, uh, and so, you know, and at some point, it, this actually surfaced, this actually surfaced during AOC's campaign, uh, where she was, you know, fulminating against the gig economy. And it turned out, of course, she and her campaign were like big users of Uber, right? Yeah. Um, right. And so at some point, it's just like, you know this is what this is what caused uber and lyft to work is at some point it's just like well just obviously this is better like obviously right it's better for everybody obvious airbnb obviously it's better right uh, you know hotels still exist you can still stay in a hotel people you know a, a very large number of people overwhelmingly prefer to stay in airbnb it's a better experience um, and then, you know, overwhelmingly people who listen to Airbnb are doing it because they either want to have a business on the side or because they're using it to help cover their house payments or because it's a fun thing for them to do. And it's it's, it's something that they're voluntarily choosing to do. And so anyway, we are I would say this is the, the light version of revolution, but at least it's not pinning your hopes on kind of these endless streams of reform uh, that at least in my view, you know, seem to never materialize. Yeah, I
0: mean, it is, so is it, isn't that... You know, I think about uh, Peter Thiel's distinction between you know the world of bits and the world of atoms, and we've been making progress in the world of bits, but you know not the world of atoms. And uh, is this sort of revolutionary strategy? Is it limited to stuff that can be solved through bits and, and software? Because you know, you know the recent examples tend to be things like Airbnb, something that you know that can, can be solved. Just you know, computers are always getting better, they're getting cheaper, they're faster, uh, mobile devices, all all of that. Uh, and then, but if you go in like. Like you know, if you traffic right, you just want to dr- drive somewhere. And you want your commute to work. Um, you know that's not good. <laughs> that's staying the same or getting worse. Travel at the airports is getting worse, right? Um, and so there's these these places that are just the, the, you know the, it seems like you can revolutionize uh, in the way of software when there is a software solution to something. Uh, the, you know, I guess the question is, what do we do for the you know the large portion of things in the world that are problems that can't be solved in a similar way we have to overcome the the re- regulation somewhere or the other
1: yeah so um so there's a part of what peter says that i, that I really agree with and, and what you're saying that i really agree with and um and, and i'll come back to that but, but let me start with the part that i agree with a little bit less um which is, it's, it, there isn't, what you find is there really isn't this, like, clear demarcation between bits and atoms anymore. Um, and I would argue that um, Uber and Air, Uber and Airbnb are actually great examples of this. Like, Uber is a software, like, yes, the company Uber runs builds and runs a software app. but And, and things happen in that software app. But when things happen in that software app, they, they directly affect the distribution of bits in the real world. i sorry, of atoms in the real world right and so and if you think about this there's like a magic there's a magic to this think about as follows which is there's a programmer at uber who's typing in code right now right when he punches enter all of a sudden right hundreds of thousands of cars today are going to drive to places that they would not have otherwise driven right and hundreds of thousands of drivers are going to drive uh and pick up passengers they never would have picked up before and those are you know (laughs) the drivers and the cars and the passengers are all made of atoms right um Right. And so, so you have this kind of sort of, um, you know, sort of like software controlling the world in a lot of ways, right? Like you, you, you have, you have code that then directly expresses itself in the real world and causes the real world of atoms to reorganize. And, And obviously Airbnb is another example of that. Um, and and you mentioned traffic and you mentioned traffic as an example, like you know look the 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 one of the solutions to traffic ultimately is autonomy and having you know much more intelligent kind of navigation and kind of you know good kind of comprehensive you know kind of system of determining who goes who goes where and when and how to best optimize for that and and you know look a self driving car is you know it's a lot of software, but it is it's still you know you know whatever four thousand pounds of steel and glass and rubber um and it is going to go different places based on what the software says and the distribution of traffic is going to change based on what the software says and the you know as a consequence things like rush hour are going to change um and so i guess the 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 more the more kind of optimistic view is we have software not just as this tool to just build software we have this basically software which is like this magic ability to kind of do things in thin air if you will in the world of bits that actually then affect the world of atoms Uh, We have a huge discussion like this is playing out in warfare, right? You know, military strategy all over the place. Um, You know, it's it's, it's playing out lots of industries. Um, Let me give you an example of um, let me just give you kind of uh, an example um, uh, of a a company. uh, Let's see. (laughs) Actually, I probably shouldn't give that example. There are a lot of examples of companies that we have um, uh, that I could go on at length about where, you know, they're doing something in software. But the ability to kind of translate into real world activity is, I think, you know, fundamentally greater than people think. Um, Oh, and then I would I would make one more claim, which is like increasingly what we see is software that literally replaces the need, right, for bits or for uh, for atoms, right? And so uh, I mean the great example there is you know this just massive kind of shove towards video conferencing that's taken place in the last year and a half, right? Which is you know as you said like you know software hasn't eaten the airplane in like a literal sense, in that you know the you know airplanes contain a lot of software, but it's still you know fundamentally a physical object. Um, But if I can do, you know, a super high quality internet, internet based video, you know, experience or, um you know, be part of a virtual conference and therefore substitute for an actual real world trip with a real world plane that I now don't need to take, like it's a direct substitution. And so I think that's another way, another way you kind of get this, this effect. Um, having said all that, I, I do, I do still agree with the larger point. Um, we kind of have an unfair advantage of disrupting through software. Um, and it's just because like software is inherently so malleable right? It's just like software is fundamentally somebody sitting in front of a keyboard and like typing something in and then kind of magical things happen. Um, you know, the, the world of atoms is, is obviously not like that. Um, so, so we just have this, you know, we, we, we basically, we, we just, we have this kind of magic, you know, kind of tool in the world of bits that we don't have in the world of atoms. Um, you know, and then we could get into this long discussion about like what would be required to apply these same principles in the the world of atoms. Um, you know, we do a lot. We, we do have a lot of activities. You know, we do fund companies that go straight after the world of atoms. Um, I would say they're, it's, it's just significantly harder. And, and I think most of those questions very rapidly become societal questions, right? Which is, you know, of course, you know, the hard ones, which is like, you know, what do we want? Right? Like, how much change do we want? Like, what is the rate of like incumbent lock-in versus disruption that we actually want? What is the level of, you know, government regulatory capture intertwining with oligopolies that we actually want? And, and, you know, just observationally as a society, we seem to want a fair amount of that right now. Um, And and honestly, like, I don't know that I'm in a position to really change that. So I I think we're, I think people, people like me are primarily reacting uh, to that as opposed to actually really changing that very much.
0: Yeah. You, yeah. You talked about uh, uh, software sort of having this, unfair advantage. And it's, I I think it's just not inherent to the product, but it's just inherent to, it's also inherent to our regulatory regulatory environment, right? They talk about the Zoom replacing the airplane. A a huge consideration for me of whether I take a flight is just how uh, inconvenient air travel has gotten, right? Most of the time, the time spent in the, you know, the time spent in the air is a minority of the time that it takes to, to travel somewhere, right? You've got to go through security. You've got to get there a few hours early. You've got to wait for the delay. Uh, you got to wait for your car. It's just—it's just, it's just not—you know—it's not very good, and it's getting worse. You know, it's got gotten worse since nine eleven. It's some places. It's the airport's now the only place you have to wear masks. I, I don't know if that's ever going going away. Uh So there's just a lot of things now that. Uh, make air travel un- un- uncomfortable so of course zoom will, will eat its lunch when, when zoom is allowed to exist and get better while you know air travel is not maybe it's just harder to make air travel better but i you know i, I feel that a lot of it is uh clearly uh regulations um yeah so, let, me, let, let me hit one thing on, on the air travel so
1: here's an, here's another thing to think about so you think about the policy issues so immigration um so, and this is not a statement on like immigration pro or con or whatever, just like observing that this is like a big, obviously, this is like a big societal political you know, policy issue in the, in the current world. And so, you know, traditionally, if I wanted to work at a company in another country, I would have to go to that country, right? And I would have to be an immigrant from my my country and an immigrant, you know, at least, at least for a while into, into the other country, um, you know, in a world of remote work and Zoom and Slack and, you know, every other online system we have now for doing, you know, remote work via software um i can now work for you know people anywhere in the world can work for at least you know companies doing any kind of knowledge work right and it's just like you know immigration policies apply to the atoms of the human being they don't apply to the bits right and so i can go to work for some other company anywhere in the world i can just work there i can you know if it's a remote first country or or a remote friendly company in whatever country that it is i'm a fully integrated employee um i may never travel there i may never have to travel there um and so and it's like one way of interpreting that is basically this world of bits increasingly makes, for example, immigration policy just like a completely like like a, a much less interesting topic. Or let's just say it 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 makes immigration policy much less uh, powerful uh, in terms of actually restricting the flow of, quote unquote, people, because um, even though I may not be able to physically uh, enter, um, you know, virtually I can and I do uh, and I have and I will. Um, and I can you know, basically live my life in this other country virtually, um, you know, at least from an economic standpoint. Um, and so you know, on the one hand, maybe you could say like immigration policy is you know increasingly moot, um, you know as compared to the the ability for people to kind of virtually travel uh, uh, over bits. You know, an- another way you could look at it is you could say, well, actually, like maybe this really takes the edge off you know the need for immigration. Maybe this actually reduces the salience of the entire issue in a very positive way, which is maybe a lot of people will be much happier actually staying in their home countries um, and not wanting to immigrate and immigrate to some other place because now they won't have to. Um, and, and so man, so maybe the demand for immigration actually falls, right. And it just becomes a less salient issue because people can get what they want economically over the internet. And they can continue to live in their home countries, and be part of their local culture and their family and not have to make the kind of harsh trade-offs that a lot of migrants historically have had to make. And I, and I feel like, yeah, and I guess I, I feel like we're, 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 we're on the very front end of even conceptualizing that this is now a choice, uh, you know, that these are, that these are actually viable scenarios, but, but I, I think they, they actually now are for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, okay, so to turn, I mean, to turn the topic, uh, to shift the topic a little bit, uh, I was interested in this, you know, interview you did with a guy, I think his name was Nicholas uh, Soldo. Um, yep. And you, um, I, you know, what struck me about the interview, and what made I think your take different from most takes of most people I read, is that you're, you're, uh, you know, you're a big techno optimist. And so, you know, when you, we talk about tech in sort of the political realm now, there's sort of a, I think a left wing critique and a right wing critique, although sometimes they they blend together. But I, I think the left wing critique is about you know income inequality and you know like uh, AOC's you know criticism of, of the gig economy. I think I think there's there. I, I find that critique. Less convincing and less interesting. It just it sort of sounds like, a uh, it's, it's just sort of sounds like, you know, the same mistake the of you know, people have been making against technology, you know, since the beginning of time. So I, I don't find that very convincing, but there's also a, a right wing critique that I, I think is a little more interesting. Um, and the idea is sort of we are becoming weird and antisocial thanks to, you know, that there's this addiction element. I don't like the medicalized terminology, but basically, you know, our screens bring us a lot of joy. Uh, immediate in the, in the immediate short term, um, and we're not. Doing things that previous generations did. You know, we're not going to play outside as much. Um, I don't know about we. Like, uh, you know, I'm talking more like the younger generation. They're not going outside. They're not uh, developing social skills. They're not becoming, uh, you know, they're uh, they're not uh, becoming resilient. And people will point to stuff like showing increasing rates of depression, mental uh, with People like Jonathan Haidt. You know, the last uh, 10, 15 years. I, I think Haidt and uh, Lukinoff they blame it on the on the cell phone and the kids getting smartphones. Uh, so there's just you know cultural critique of technology and what's it do What's it doing to um, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit sympathetic to it, um, but I, my impression from uh, reading what you write and uh, uh, reading your interviews is that you're, you're much more optimistic. So, can you give sort of the the optimistic take for technology and what it's doing to our brains?
1: Yeah, so let me frame the uh, let me frame the overall dynamic you described, which is the left wing and right wing critiques, uh, and then we'll get into the, the specifics. So, so Brian, Brian, economist Brian Kaplan uh, famously he, he has a long term exercise to try to distill down the sort of partisan differences between left and right to the to the sort of most parsimonious explanation. And he finally came up with one a few years ago that I think about a lot, which is he said, the core principle of the left uh, is the left hates markets, right? And so like the left hates markets and they hate markets, of course, because markets generate inequality, you know, markets, you know, markets surface, <laughs> markets surface, what things are actually valued, markets surface who actually produces a lot. And so markets just naturally generate inequality. And so therefore the left hates markets. Um, uh, and then he says that the right, uh, the main principle of the right is the right hates the left. Right. Um, and so, right. And, and, you know, this is the old Buckley thing of, you know, the role of conservatism just is to stand athwart history, you know, with a capital H and yell stop. Right. Which is like basically from the right, you view is like, OK, all of the all of the societal changes happening around us are all being driven from the left. They're all driving things further to the left. Um, you know, they're all, you know, leading societies in the directions that the left thinks that, that, that things should go and, and that they're and that those things are bad because they're, you know, against tradition and they're against history. Uh, you know, they're against the way that, you know, the way that things have always worked um, and the things that have, you know, in their view been proven. And so, therefore, you know, those things are bad. And so I, I think I think technology I think technology gets kind of, in my view, kind of trapped up in this dynamic. Um, you know, so th- therefore, to your point, like the left fundamentally, the left hates technology because they hate capitalism. They hate capitalism because they hate markets. They hate markets because markets are inegalitarian. And so there's you know, we 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 just kind of slot naturally into that critique. Um, and then the right hates technology because it seems like technology is a tool of the left, right? In, in the sense of like, whatever societal changes are happening, are happening kind of, you know, basically through technology, right? Because, you know, look, technology does change human behavior. Like technology does change how societies work. It always has, you know, it may be the main thing. It may be the main thing that, you know, the main thing that does um and so um you know to the extent that that's true then you know whatever societal changes are happening are probably happening either as a consequence of technology or at least through technology you know those are changes generally that are the left is in favor of and the right is opposed to um so i think we i think we're kind of i think we're kind of in like i think in a lot of ways we are the you know i think about this a lot like we are the perfect thing We we are we are like hyper like evolved to be the thing that's maximally hated by both sides um which is actually, you know, quite an interesting position to be in. Um, So anyway, so we can talk about that. But um, yeah, so the specific, uh, the specific critique. So I guess the question is, yeah, I guess is the question, let me actually make clear for the question. Is the, is the question a very specific question of like, is technology changing how we operate as human beings or is it a, is it a, is it a broader question on social change? Uh,
0: Well, I mean, it's both is, is, you know, is there something to the critique that what technology is doing to our our brains has a, Bad psychological effect and anything that has a bad psychological effect on a mass scale will obviously have a a, a negative uh, social effect so i mean, uh, do you i mean do you find that critique convincing at all
1: yeah so you know there's i guess there's a couple things so one is um you know it's, it's important to, you know there's there i would say there's there's maybe a tendency to just be flat out ahistorical. let me defend technology for a minute and then maybe we'll come back to maybe a little bit more of the case of the prosecution so so one is there's there's like a, an ahistorical component to the the kind of this whole these discussions generally, um, which is basically it's like um, I'll give you an example like technology is causing political radicalization like technology is causing people to believe in all these kind of cultish like uh, you know political you know kind of movements um, you know causing people to radicalize politically um, and it's like well okay the problem though is that like both communism and and Nazism like predated the internet right like have some point of, like say what you will about hitler like he didn't use the internet yeah no. right like nazism like did pretty well as a crazy insane you know psychotic political philosophy that was adopted by a lot of people and had like major catastrophic consequences like without the internet in fact you know basically like radio right um uh was the thing you know communism you know communism swept the globe and you know communism was again it was sort of entirely pre internet in fact the internet didn't really take off until you know right around actually i yeah, especially
0: I yeah, I think this ideological th- thing, yeah, I-, I think you're right. I think people talk about, oh my God, the, uh, uh, misinformation and the rise of, you know, white supremacy because of online. Yeah, I, I don't find that very convincing. What about the psychological thing that people are becoming sort of brittle and, uh, you know, uh, that they're becoming uh, more anxious and they're just not like, you know, being a human, they're not just going out there. You know, when I was a kid, I, I feel lucky because I'm, I'm just old enough to, you know, I was in uh, the internet, you know, the, I grew up before social media. I think, you know, the internet, I first discovered message boards, maybe when I was in ninth or 10th grade, I had a, you know, a flip phone, I think by 11th eleventh uh, grade. And so I was, you know, I was uh, grew up in this time where I remember the pre-internet world. Um, and my life revolved around, um, you know, hanging out with, other people, uh, calling them on the phone, you know, trying to find, uh, girls to, to go out with me, uh, you know, getting into fights with guys and, you know, all of these things are, you know, some of these things are healthy. Some of these things are not healthy, you know, getting in trouble sometimes. Uh, but you know, I felt like the entire time I was sort of, um you know I felt like I was improving socially I was sort of finding my way in the world and I don't know if I you know and I and I think I was growing up you know I had a bit of social anxiety and I had a little bit of social awkwardness and, you know the socializing didn't really come natural to me and I think that it, it took a lot of sort of um you know getting rejected getting getting uh, made fun of getting beat up to sort of you know become somebody to become somebody better and I don't know like if I was born today, right, or born 10 years ago, Uh, I could have done all of that digitally, right? Um, So, yeah, and so, so I think about my own life, and I think about, you know, this sort of remembering the pre-internet world and the post-internet and post-smartphones and social media world. And I think about, you know, the, the sort of the political ideologies, you know, they're not communism or Nazism, but the things that take it over just seem to be very self-centered and they, as they seem to be consistent with this idea that people are becoming, you know, more brittle and less able to deal with real challenges. And I do wonder, you know, is this making us worse psychologically? Is, is that the effect of social media, the internet, you know, our smartphones?
1: Well, so I I remember the pre-internet world a little bit differently. <laughs> so this is the other part. This is you know, it's wonder about the rose-colored glasses kind of component to this. So, and of course, you know, we all have our own experiences. And so I, I don't mean to question yours, but um, you know, I, re- I remember the pre-internet world very differently. Which is, I remember. So I grew up in the Midwest in the 70s and 80s, and I remember basically, I remember basically non-stop moral panics in the opposite direction. Um, and so, and this I find very amusing over the last several years because it's like, boy, everything that they told me to freak out about in the 70s and 80s now apparently we're supposed to miss and wish we had more of, which is like. You know the idea of like kids like as an example like dating and having sex. You know where I grew up in the '70s and '80s was like a major constant source of moral panic, yeah. right? and it was literally up to the up to and including like all the kids are going to die because they're all going to get AIDS. Yeah. Right. If you have sex, you're going to get AIDS. if you're if you're a straight person, you have sex, you're going to get AIDS. You're going to die. Right. And so like it's a it's a death sentence for teenagers who have premarital sex. So right? I mean that was like a serious panic. Um, there was also a very serious panic about child kidnappings. Um, And, you know, so, you know, I I sort of grew up in the full flush of the satanic panic. And so it was literally this thing of, you know, there were going to be, you know, in any given day, if you went and played outside, you were going to get like snatched off the street by the creepy guy in the van and never be, you know, never be heard from again. And all these kids getting, you know, kind of abused, and vanished, you know, kind of through these things. Um, You know, it was just like nonstop panic kind of every step of the way. Um, you know, that basically whatever kids were doing was like bad and horrible and dangerous and likely to lead to the, you know, and then of course it was all of the panic, you know, kind of flowing out of the revolutionary changes in the sixties. And so, you know, it's heavy, you know, I know where I grew up is like, you know, heavy metal music is like a tool of Satan, right? Like, and heavy metal music is going to like seriously, like permanently, like, you know, make this entire generation of kids like deeply like immoral and wicked, right? And, like you know, if you listen to heavy metal music today, it's like, oh, that's that's quaint, <laughs> right? that's kind of cute, yeah. um you know, and of course, that moral panic then got immediately transplanted onto hip hop um and then, if you kind of go back further in history, like I think what you find over and over again is is basically those those kinds of moral panics, right there's this right this great Twitter account called pessimus Arc, where he kind of these these guys kind of go back and document all this stuff, but like You know, there was this gigantic moral panic in the mid late, and the late 1800s around the bicycle, right? Um, And this idea that kids were going to be able to, like, you know, range from village to village without adult supervision. And, of course, they were all going to get sex and, you know, have children out of wedlock and get STDs and die. Um, You know, there was moral panic about radio. There was moral panic about, you know, paperback novels. There was moral panic in the 50s about comic books. You know, and so there, there is this, conti- like in any given generation, basically, whatever the kids are doing is just like, is just like the worst thing that's ever happened. Um, and it's going to lead to like certain doom, destruction, and the collapse of Western civilization. Um, so, so anyway, so like, I, I, yeah, I, I don't, it was far from, at least, <laughs> at least where I grew up, it was not nearly as idyllic as I think people, uh, as I hear people describe. Maybe, you know, maybe people had, had more idyllic experiences um look having said that now let me argue a little bit more on the case for the prosecution um which is I'd say technology to some extent i think you know as, as you've been discussing like it drives psych you know i i would certainly concede like technology is certainly capable of driving psychological change um uh we could talk about like i think there's a whole actually future frontier of neurochemistry that's going to get very important as we try to actually kind of fully understand this which which we, we still don't very well in the science right now but Yeah, these capable technologies for sure capable of driving psychological change. I think that's that's almost certainly true. It's certainly capable of driving sociological change, but then you've also got this like you know this this old question of like is it an engine or is it a camera, like or or let me put it this way: is it a cause or is it a or is it or is it a mechanism, right? Like, is give you an example: is social media is social media a cause of behavioral changes among teenagers that would not be happening if not for the technology, um, or is the technology simply the method that those psychological changes are instantiating themselves, right, and transmitting, right? And so I'll just give you an example, you know, know, as you you know, like the 1960s kicked off like, you know, this incredible kind of, you know, sort of sexual revolution, this revolution of sexual mores. This revolution in you know gender dynamics between men and women, this you know entire revolution of like you know exceptions to homosexuality and then all the you know kind of things and and you know you know you know the so-called sex change operation started around that time and that you know of course has become trans right enabler for the for the trans movement and like you know those things all started like thirty years forty years before the internet and so you know the internet shows up kind of thirty or forty years into those things and then those things. Like, look, at the very least, those, thing, those behaviors and those changes and those principles and those movements for sure then basically travel through the internet and are enabled by the internet, right, and are, are you know, are spread via the internet, um, you know, good or bad or indifferent or whatever, like, you know, for sure that's true. Were they caused by the internet, right? In, in the counterfactual, had the internet not emerged, you know, would these, would these social behavioral changes be happening anyway? And would they just and would they just simply be happening through the older technologies? Would they be happening through television and radio and newspapers and you know comic books and novels and all the other movies and all the other media that they were already happening through from the sixties through the nineties? I think quite possibly. And so and so I guess that what I would propose is it's probably a more complex interrelationship where tech you know, technology is probably somewhat an engine, right, of a driver of change. It's somewhat a camera, which is just a way for us to actually see the change. You know, it's somewhat like an enabling mechanism um uh you know or sort of a conduit it's it's kind of a blend of those three and i think it's i think it's actually quite hard to to disentangle those.
0: yeah i th- i think that's that's fair enough you know there's there's some trends you can see that just start online and you can't imagine them coming you know from anywhere else uh, uh, there's a term now demisexual where yeah. the kids say, you know, if you want, you know, this is just, you know, uh, if you, you need to have a personal connection with someone to have sexual attraction to them. And the joke on social media is like, you know, that's just being a girl. Right. Um, and people trace this. To like a Tumblr account, right? Would that have like made its way into a novel and maybe taken off in the same way? Maybe I don't know, but it seems like some of these crazy things can be directly traced to to the internet. Uh, but uh, well,
1: let me give you let me give you an example. Here's something I think about in a related kind of way that maybe would apply back to this, which is, um, I think <laughs> I think people forget how boring things were before the internet. Um, like it's like here's my little, People really like to be into things like people like to have a thing, right? That people like to have something that's like, not just like go to work, come home, collapse on the couch, go to work the next day, you know, take the, you know, whatever, whatever, change the, change the baby's diaper, you know, today, change the baby's diaper tomorrow. Like, pe- people like to have a thing, right? And, you know, once upon, a, if you go back thousands of years, the thing was, you know, the, you know, the gods of the tribe and, the, you know, the family and the tribe and the, you know, sort of whatever cult you were in as part of being a part of a family or a tribe or a city. Um, you know, if you progress through to the you know last two thousand years, it's you know the big religions. You know, people got super into you know you know Protestantism and Catholicism and Judaism and Islam and so forth. Um, and then you know the rise of you know mass media, they got super into you know movies and entertainment and music and you know all kinds of things. And then you know some level of sort of fringe political movements or you know actual cults. You know, people got super into Scientology or something like that. Um, you know, but, but like, you know, they were, they kind of these big, these big movements and, you know, kind of a lot of other people were in them and it, you know, was never that distinctive and, you know, unique and original to be, you know, I don't know, Catholic, um, or something like that. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it was a marker of identity, but it wasn't like a marker of uniqueness in the way that kind of modern man maybe looks for. Um, and so if, so, so there used to be a term, there used to be a term for activities that people would do to pass the time before the internet Um, that's almost that terms almost completely died Um, and the term is hobby right like people used to have hobbies right and so when i was a kid it was like well what do you do when you get home from you know you go to work whatever you get home you go to school you get home you have a hobby and it's like if you remember what hobbies were like when i was a kid it was like stamp collecting right and it was like coin collecting (laughs) it was like ham radio right and it was like you know i don't know whatever woodworking, right and it's just like you know and like, I don't know, maybe there were a few people who were like super into woodworking or super into like stamp collecting. But like, you know, I went through my phases and all these things. And after the first like couple months, it's just like, okay, it's a bunch of stamps in a book. Like, this is boring. Uh, I'm on to the next one. Um, like <laughs> the internet, I think, has just like killed hobbies. Like they're just dead. Like they're just all dead. They're gone. The concept doesn't even exist. It's actually funny. The concept of having a hobby died at the exact same time as the concept of quote unquote going online. Right. Which is yeah. which is a phrase that you heard constantly from like 1994 to like 2005. You know, you get home at night and you go online. Right. And the big Internet company in the 90s actually was actually America Online. Right. So it's like a big deal. America's going go online. And then, you know, starting in like the mid 2000s, it's like people stopped going online. Why did they stop going online? Because we're online all the time. Right. The idea of not being online is now the weird thing. Right. Um, and so hobbies died when everybody went online. And so it's like, OK, what replaced hobbies? Right, and of course, what to your point, what replaced hobbies basically, I think, is basically internet movements, right? Um, internet community. Oh, sorry say, so the benign way to put it would be internet communities. The somewhat more intense way to put it would be internet cults, right? Um, and so now, what are people into? They're into stamp collecting or coin collecting. They're in, and you, you know, they're into, you know, the, you know, they're into, you know, socialism, right, o- online, or they're into mega, or they're into QAnon. Um, or they're into you know the Trump Russia conspiracy, or they're into Bitcoin, or they're into you know Elon, or they're into you know you just that's you know
0: sounds awful. awful. That's something like being into MAGA, QAnon, or wokeness and Russia gauge instead of stamp collecting. Is that, is that an improvement?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, it's but like literally, I think there's a big I think I think actually that I, I would actually say like literally that's what's happening. I I say look, you could you could paint a picture of that that says that's horrible. These are you know these are destructive things, and like this is you know these things you know everybody's being driven crazy and all this stuff. You you could also say it's not boring. Like things were pretty boring. Like things were pretty dull, right? And and, and in fact, you could actually this this would be a right wing argument, right? Like the right wing argument is right. The right wing one of the right wing arguments, right, is man is not meant to simply be you know, man is not simply meant to be an atomized economic function, right? Man is not optimized to just literally be like a drone. Um, and to just kind of drift along on, you know, kind of the, you know, the, 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 sort of, you know, kind of waves of history and to not, you know, have sort of a principal position on which to stand and not have a sense of identity, you know, for something that's just greater than himself and not have a, you know, a sense of a connection to community and the family and to society and, and all these things. And, you know, a big, a right-wing critique of, you know, quote-unquote neoliberalism is that it, you know, atomizes society and kind of renders everything, you know, basically dull and bland and, you know, kind of gray, right? You know, Nietzschean concept of the last man or, <laughs> you know, the, the new right calls the bug man. Um, and like, okay, so, you know, what's, what's the opposite of the bug man, right? It's like somebody who's like fully engaged and energized, right? And, 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 and of course, what are they engaged and energized in? You know, the, what is the ultimate thing to be energized about? It's capital H history, right? Like, it's like, okay, like the actual future unfolding of human events. Um, and so, you know, none of us like all of the, all of these different movements, but like at least people are into things that are a lot more stimulating and arguably important the stamp collecting and you know so i don't know like well here's the other thing like well, here's the other question right which i think about a lot which is okay this if you believe if you sort of buy in everything i just said you it good bad or indifferent you could kind of say it is new right like it, it, so it, it feels to me like the i don't know what you want to call it like the global nervous system has like woken up you know in the last like 10 or 15 years in a way that it, it had not before uh like people just feel like a lot more I don't know. Energized Um, uh, people feel a lot more, you know. Again, good or bad, energized, agitated, whatever you want to call it. Like people are just like there's there's an electricity in the air that is new. Um, And you know, look, maybe this is maybe this is the beginning. Maybe this all just like intensifies for the rest of our lives, or maybe this is just us getting used to a new way of living. And five or ten years from now, we're going to look back and we're going to say, okay, things you know went a little bit crazy there for a while, but now we actually know how to harness this you know new, new technology and you know have it be in our lives without it driving us all nuts um and i <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's it's a big question
0: yeah, I think the right wing you know uh, you know I think the right big answer to that is not the is not that the alternative to these internet cults is stamp collecting, right I think the alternative that a lot of people think we've gotten away from is finding partners getting married having children. I, you know, I sort of think that that's something you do when you're, when you're bored. And, you know, maybe, you know, like, you know, people say, oh, I don't want to have kids. You know, I want to, I want to travel. And, you know, it's a different kind of fulfillment. If you're, if you're looking for, you know, pure excitement, you know, maybe, maybe travel makes more sense than the children. But I think a lot of people, especially on the political right, would say it's better for society and it's better overall, even for you to make the choice of, being boring right settling down having that family and you know if you're if you're if you're just you know uh getting excited to buy capital h history uh, all day and you know not passing out your genes and dying aversion <laughs> I, think that, I think a lot of people are sort of horrified by that possibility right it's not just about replacing stat collecting with you know threat you know um uh, you know trolling people on twitter it, it, you know i think we're we might be losing something more important and fundamental
1: well, let me, let me let me so let me give you a case for optimism here from another direction um, th- th- to your to your argument. Let me give you a case for optimism to, you, to your exact argument here, um, which is the the, the, the how the post COVID world might be different, right? Um, which is basically you know uh, um, which is basically like as follows. Which is like a right, a big reason for the kind of whatever neoliberal atomization of society, right? Historically, has been this economic driver um, where if you're a young and ambitious person and you want to have a career. Um, and you want to kind of experience, you know, the sort of exciting things, and you want to like pursue interesting, you know, fields and whatever, um, you know. But you grew up in a small town or a medium-sized town or some place or a, you know, the you know maybe a country where the, it's not the the you know kind of where all the action is. Um, you know, for thousands of years, the answer has been you move to a city, right? Um, and, and generally speaking, you move. You know, the bigger the city, the better. Um, and over the fullness of time, you know, that led to this concept of these superstar cities. Right. So, the, you know, the Bay Area or Los Angeles or, or New York or, you know, whatever, um, you know, Hong Kong or, or, uh, you know, these sort of these, you know, these sort of really big spectacular cities. Um, and generally, as a young person, if you want to engage in all these exciting things like you know, that's 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 what you did. Um, and, and then again, using your right-wing argument is that, you know, that, that therefore was like the disassembly of the extended family, right. And then the sort of creation of this idea of the nuclear family, right. Which is a very kind of a historical concept. Um, and then you have these, you know, you basically these fractured communities. And by the way, you also had like the consequences of adverse selection, right. As a result, which is like, why, why are a lot of small towns in so much trouble? You know, one argument is, is because all of the really kind of highly ambitious, highly capable people left. Right. Cause they, 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 you know, they left for better opportunities. Right. And, and you could even argue this at a national level, you know, why, why are, you know, why are certain countries, for example, in the EU doing much worse than others? And some of it is just simply the flow of the young, talented people. You know, if you grew up in one of the small peripheral countries, you probably went to one of the bigger countries, you know, to kind of realize your professional aspirations or to be around people who are more like you. Cause, cause you literally had, had to leave and you, you know, to, you had to go do that. Well, you know, that was all pre-COVID. That was all pre-Zoom, right? That was all pre-internet, right? That was all pre-remote work. Um, and so I think there's a there is a, there's a real possibility. As Catherine Boyle wrote a, a fantastic piece on this um, uh, a couple months ago that I really recommend it. But there's like a real possibility here that people can now actually decouple these decisions. So they can decouple basically where they work from where they live. Um, but at a more fundamental level, maybe they don't have to make the same trade-off you know, it, they don't have to make the same trade-off kind of at all in the extreme case, which is I can continue to live in a place where, you know, maybe I'm with my extended family. Maybe I, you know, it's a place where it's actually, by the way, I could afford to buy a house. Right. It's a place where I could actually afford to be part of like a you know, a more traditional community. Uh, maybe it's actually a place where I can be around more people who are like me from a religious standpoint or philosophical standpoint or political standpoint. Right. I could be part of a community of people who are, you know, co religious um, you know, which is also an idea that really fractured. Um, and, and I can, and I can have sort of a thriving personal life that has more of, let's say the traditional values that you, that you're arguing in favor of. Um, but because I now have the internet, I also have access to all of the excitement and all of the employment opportunities and all of the chance to interact with interesting people. And I can do, I can do all those things through the screen. Right. And so it, it could, it could be that this technology is going to unlock this new way of living. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's going to kind of be the best of both worlds.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You know, you made me think. You know, about uh, I don't know how much you've been paying attention to what China's doing with trying to improve the birth rate, but they just uh, removed the two. Child limit, right? They gave, their, they put it a three child limit. And it's not that simple because they're, they're sort of doing a more holistic sort of policy approach. So, for example, they're going after the tech, uh, education sort of tutoring industry on the grounds that it makes parenting expensive. It plays on the fears of parents. So they're just, they just wiped out a lot of, um, uh, market value of, of all their biggest companies. And they're, you know, they're focusing on stuff like housing. Even the propaganda is in line about, you know, families and children for the nation. So you have this sort of centralized approach. And, you know, I, I I'm not saying, you know, that's good or bad, but it's an approach that I think is interesting to sort of look at and see if that works or if you're just pushing against a grain of technology and it doesn't work. And maybe with, you know, remote work, we, we sort of get the same thing through decentralized means, right? We're doing, we're doing a different kind of experiment and that could potentially be yeah, a benefit of a, of a work from home. I think you're, yeah, I think you're right on that. that that's, that's an interesting possibility. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to something you said before. It was uh uh, you're saying we're sort of we're right this place where you know we're sort of ideal to be hated by the right and the yeah. left um, and you know I've thought a little bit about that I think that you know is it just it's sort of human nature right so you know when you wrote, wrote your article about uh software eating the world um you know, sort of look at look at it this way. I mean, if it, if like you have you bring up the uh, example of Netflix, which is a really really cool product, right? You have an unlimited number of uh, shows and movies. It's very convenient. The software works great. You can sit there on your screen on you know on your device on your phone. You can watch whatever you want as long as you want. It's affordable. It's great. Um, and you know that's a great accomplishment, but people don't really feel it in the same way. So, like I was thinking of like if you had an alternative. Uh, you know, an alternative world where instead of Netflix, you invented like this transporting tube, right, that you sometimes see in science fiction, where they would just take you straight to the movie theater, right, or something like (laughs) that. Uh, That wouldn't be as good as Netflix, right? The selection would still be uh would be lower. You uh you'd have to get there on time. You couldn't be in the you know in the comfort of your own home. Uh, but I think people would be grateful for that, and they would see that as a great innovation. While sort of this idea that it just sort of you know comes to your house that easily um it doesn't just it doesn't feel like progress right it feels like oh just more convenience and we, you know we sort of have enough of that is it, it, is the does the, the sort of you know i think a lot of these things can be made to feel you know like progress like i think you know if you told someone 20 years ago you had an iphone and you could uh uh sit there and you could have all the information of the world literally a second away right i mean i think people would have been impressed by that but I just think people don't feel it in their bones the way they feel some kind of change in atoms, you know, is. is, is this a problem that sort of tech is hard to sell just because it's not romantic? It doesn't speak to something like within us, which wants to see, you know, planes flying and cars going really fast and just things out there in the real world.
1: Well, you know, the, the numbers say the opposite, right? You could, you just look at the Netflix usage numbers. and like, clearly people love it because uh, they're, they're using it all the time, right? And by the way, the same thing is true for all these other things. Like, and, and, you know, if, if anything, if anything, the correlation is, the more criticism something is getting, the more people actually like it, the more they're using it, Yeah, right? And so, it's, and, and you know, the, the, and all the, these technologies are actually interesting in that, like, we actually know the numbers. Like, <laughs> we, we know how many people use these things, like, to down to the click, right? We know exactly what they do on these services. By the way, one of the things you get when you're on the inside of these companies is you get to actually see the results of scandals. Uh, playing out in actual user behavior, right? And so you're, you'll, know, you'll, you'll have one of these companies that'll have like a privacy scandal or it'll have a, I mean, I have, our company Robinhood went through this, right? They had this, uh, you know, scandal, this whole thing around GameStop and they, for various reasons, there was the interruptions in trading. There'll, there'll be these like, you know, huge kind of freak out moments where everybody will just get absolutely furious. Um, and then you'll look at the numbers and it's just the numbers are just all up to the right.
0: A lot of things are like that. Like I'm not saying, you know, tech is like pornography, but pornography is certainly like <laughs> it, <right>? where everyone <laughs> likes it. But if you talk about it, like, I mean, everyone likes it, everyone, you know, if the numbers are a lot of people watch it. Uh, but, you know, if you talk about it politically or whether you think it's good for society, I think most sure. people say it's not. And so the question is, do we brush aside that? Like, okay, just let's, let's look at what people do. Let's not look at what people say, right? That's just cheap talk. Like, you know, we could just discount that. Or does it indicate a real problem, right? I mean, I think that's the question.
1: Well, but it's also, it, it could be a real problem for society, but it's also a real problem then to figure out what to do about that, right? Because then what you're basically saying is, okay, people are exercising, people are exercising choice. And like, you can blame it on blame chemistry or dopamine or whatever, but like, people are making a choice. Um, you know, they are there's no gun to somebody's head, you know, to force them to do any of these things. Um <laughs> these businesses would be a lot easier if you could force people to use them. Um I can tell you you can't. Um and so uh you know, then what you've got is you've got, you know, a very large number of people. Um, uh, you know, for the big services, you've got hundreds of millions or billions of people who are exercising, you know, at least some element of free choice to do these things. Um you can see in the data um uh, that they're incredibly highly engaged. You can see in the data that the scandals, if anything, just just cause people to use them more. And yet you're going to have this top, right? the challenge then is you're going to have this top down view that this is bad. And so therefore, you know, X and, you know, it, when X translates into, you know, something that is a kneecapping or a denial or a, you know, restriction, right? Now you're in territory where you're telling, I mean, you're you're fundamentally in prohibition territory, right? Like you're telling people like, okay, I know you like, I know you like beer, <laughs> but like we're all going to stop drinking because it'll be better for society. Yeah,
0: but every, right? everyone has something like very few people will say legalize all hard drugs, right? Very few people will say maybe maybe you do. A lot of libertarians will bite that bullet and say whatever choice is good. But everyone sort of draws a line somewhere, right? So it's not that, that crazy to, to say that about tech compared to anything else.
1: Yeah, look, I mean, there, there are, you know, it's obviously there are, you know, so there's, there's all the, you know, there's all the speech debates, right? About, you know, free speech debates that apply to like the social networks, for example. But like, look, you know, it, it doesn't matter how free speech somebody is. People are not going to be in favor of terrorist, you know, actual terrorist recruitment. Um, you know, they're not going to be in favor of like actual, like, you know, whatever white nationalist, you know, you know, you know, sort of violent movements, you know, they, there are, you know, they're, they're not going to be in favor of child porn. Like there, you know, there are always restrictions. Um, and so, you know, obviously then there's a big, big, big dispute to have to, 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 where, to where to draw those lines. Um, but let me go back to your Netflix thing, though, which, which again, it goes to this consumer choice thing, which is you you postulated the existence of like this magical movie theater experience um, that would maybe be like more special when in person and have these other attributes. Well, I mean,
0: it might not, it might might or might not make people happier in the moment, but politically people would feel like that was a great accomplishment in the way they well, did it on Netflix. And whether it's, a, maybe it would be a better experience. I don't know because I, I, I sort of feel like these political intuitions are tied to something in human nature, which says, you know, you you can't just have a virtual reality. You can't just sit home and, you know, have all the entertainment brought to you. you got to go out there and you got to look in people's eyes and you got to, you know, see how they laugh at your jokes, see how they react to you, look at their facial expressions, right? So I think, uh, you know, I guess I'm postulating sort of a connection between these political instincts we have and, and just something deep in human nature. So that, here's the thing, that movie theater existed.
1: So that, that happened. So you, it didn't have the teleporting capability. It didn't have the special tube. So you still right. had to drive to it. But there was a theater in Los Angeles. I uh, if you, you ever had the chance to experience it. It was called the Arclight.
0: Oh, yeah. that's it's a, Isn't that a chain?
1: Uh, it's a very small chain. <laughs> I believe it just, uh, it, may, it, may, it may be COVID finally finished it off, but like it was a very small chain. Yeah, it never we, got have,
0: we had a few of them. Yeah, we had a lot of them just right around here. Yeah. Okay, so let me describe for
1: people who haven't experienced the Arclight, it's actually quite something. And I, and I, and I got to say, I, I I was in LA for a little while and, you know, spent some time there and I loved it. And I went there as often as I could. And I thought it was fantastic for all the reasons that you described. And I mean, it was, let me describe the Arclight experience for anybody who's been in a normal movie theater. So first of all, valet parking, right? like you don't have to like find a place to park. They like take your car. Um, Reserve seating right in 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 the theater right and so you like you roll into this thing 5 minutes before showtime you hand your key to the guy you run inside you have a reserve seat you sit in your reserve seat you know exactly what seat it's going to be by the way the seats are spectacularly comfortable right it's just like it just feels like it's the softest most pilloriest thing you've ever sat in um and then get this great food which they will bring to you in your seat right and so it's like dinner time and i'm going to have like a really good dinner while i'm sitting here watching this yeah, watching yeah. this movie <laughs> and by the way guess what else Beer, <laughs> right? Beer and wine. Um, and so I'm able to like sit in my reserve seat with my, with my, with my, with my glass of wine and with my, with my great food. And I'm going to watch this like fantastic movie on this. And then by the way, the most spectacular screen you've ever seen, like just, these just gigantic wraparound screens. This like amazing sound. Like the whole thing is just like just like this magical, magical experience, right? And it's like, the, and you know, but then, you know, they pay for it. And so it's like the ticket price is like whatever, 15 bucks instead of whatever it was in time, seven bucks or whatever, right? So, you know, it, it costs, but like, it's not like it's completely out of reach. Um, and, you know, basically people went to it a couple times and they were like, wow. And then they just kind of went, yeah, right? And then they all bought flat screen TVs and started watching Netflix at home. <laughs> so, yeah. so again, this gets to the thing of like, okay. You know, it's a theory. Uh, it makes sense. It has existed. Um, it, you know, it was prototyped. It got a certain way. It didn't really take, uh, you know, okay, so that, you know, right, so they didn't get into that, right, the, you know, the then what question, which is like, okay, should it have been, you know, <laughs> would, should Hungary, you know, Hungary has been in the news this week. Should Hungary be subsidizing our flight theaters? Yeah. You know, maybe, uh, you know, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So I I guess, I mean, so yeah, I mean, I do take that, you know, people's choices, you know, the, the, you know, the results of that very seriously. Uh, but you know, can, can you think of sort of social sociability and socializing as sort of as a collective action problem? So like, you know, so let's say you're in high school, right. And you have this friend, and he's or like, you're, you're interested in a girl, right? And maybe she's a little bit interested in you either way. And like, you see this person every day, you sit next to them in class, right? And you get used to them and the relationship builds over time. Now, if school ends, right, if you're going to go off the summer, it's like, you're not in the position where either one can reach out to the other because the relationship hasn't developed to that point, or maybe you're just too shy and nobody wants to take the risk. Uh, but like, if you're forced to sit in a seat every day and be with that person, right, eventually something can develop, you know, a friendship or a relationship or, or a marriage or whatever. And I feel like a lot of human relationships are like this. It's like things like school or like, you know, militaries are like, you know, classic where people, like nobody would like just, you know, you can't just... Uh, On your own decide, I want to have a bunch of war buddies (laughs) and just, you know, and just do that. There has to be like, it has to be organic. There has to be a war and the government has to put you in these units. And maybe you, you know, you develop relationships and those become, you know, your best friends for the rest of your life. And so, yeah, everyone is sort of, if everyone is sort of doing their own thing. Right. Um, you never get those kind of relationships. But if you have like institutions and ways to just sort of force people, sometimes they're, you know, they're, they're wasteful. You don't want to start a world war so people can, you know, become buddies with their, with their war, <laughs> with their, with their platoon, right? You don't want to do that. But you, but you do like, it, it demonstrates sort of the point that it's not just the sum of our individual choices. Sometimes you need institutions and you need s- situations that sort of facilitate human relationships and communication, right? Any like 1980s movie where like a guy is like pining after the girl is sort of like this. He just happens to see her in in his life, right? If he's making aggressive, you know, attempts to see her over and over overtly, he's a stalker, right? But the fact that, you know, they go to the same school or they hang out on the same beach or whatever, it makes it appropriate. And, you know, there's a way to pursue that relationship. Does, does Does any of that make sense to you? So you're
1: gonna hate my you're gonna hate my counter argument on this one. You're just gonna this this is gonna this is gonna be where you're gonna blow your top. So um, everything you described does not match my experience growing up. Um, so I remember something quite different, and I grew up in a very small town, rural environment. Um, but basically, what I remember is like there was almost nobody there. Like like it, I always wonder how many people who have had the kind of experiences you're talking about got very very lucky about where they grew up. Um, and they got very, very lucky about what kind of school they were in. And they got very, I mean, very, very I mean, lucky was about a
0: normal. I was in a normal, even you know, lower middle class school, not like, you know, not like an elite institution, not a big city, just a normal well, let me old, ask, Yeah, Suburban.
1: Well, let me ask, what, 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 was, uh, let me ask this. was there a college in your town?
0: No, there was not, not even, not even close. The people who went to my school, they, they, it was a South Suburbs of Chicago. And most people I went to school with probably never heard of the University of Chicago. I mean, that's how I okay. normally But it was in Chicago. It was in the South Suburbs. Yeah.
1: Okay. So Suburbs of Chicago. Okay suburbs of Chicago. <laughs> I did not grow up in the suburbs. Okay. Now I'll pull that. Now I'll pull the middle America card. Um, you grew up in the city. I did not. Um, <laughs> so, um, in a rural environment, it's not what you're describing, uh, in a rural environment. It's basically, it's basically, uh, how to put this. It's basically, y- 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 there's just, there's almost nobody to match with, Right. Like it's like it's like the matching, the matching, the real world matching algorithm you're describing is sort of dependent on there being like a critical mass of possible matches. Right. So that like statistics can like play out. um And so that there's like some level of choice. Um, like most people do not grow up in that kind of environment. And I think that would be true for sure still in the US. And I think that's certainly true all over the world. Uh, but this is this concept I, I talked to. Uh, oh, I think that's a lot of also, people though.
0: growing up in suburbs of major metropolitan metropolitan areas than there are in, in rural America. I, I, think, I think my experience probably is, is not that atypical at all.
1: I don't know. Well, well like I said, it didn't match mine. So um, I, there's a concept I talked to Nicholas Holdo about to make it conceptual for a second. So this concept I use called reality privilege, right, which is it's just like growing up in a place where there are like a lot of interesting people to talk to, um, and there are a lot of interesting people to potentially meet with, um, and there are a lot of you know people who have shared interests. Um, and a lot of people who can come together around, you know, share topics and have the kind of bonding that you're describing. Like, I don't think that's I think that's far from the universal human experience. And I think certainly on a global scale, like that's definitely not the universal human experience. Um, and so I would argue there like the Internet provides what you're describing to a much greater degree than I think you give it credit for, for a much larger number than larger number of people than you think. And you might argue and you you may well argue that it does so in a way that's like, you know, fake and, you know, or sats and not, you know, not as good and whatever, whatever, whatever. And we, we could have that discussion. But like it does do that. Um, and so, you know, look, the ability to be a kid today and be able to be on the Internet and have an interest or have a passion or have something that you want to talk to people about and be able to instantly match uh, with a critical mass of other people who have the exact same interest is like, I think, like a fundamental technological and societal breakthrough that's like greatly underestimated. Cause that, that, that was not the case where I grew up. Um, and then by the way, same thing on mating, like, look, like, you know, yes, I think that there's a real argument in favor of like the historical patterns for how people found mates. And of course, you know, you, you would, you all know, like, you know, this, this, you know, this, this, the right wing argument on this is, you know, a lot of this couples to the decline of religion, right. Cause you know, historically, like one of the fundamental, like, you know, purposes of church was actually for, you know, for, for actually development of mating, you know, opportunities for people to be able to meet each other with shared values and be able to, you know, get married and from families. Um, you know, it's a sort of a trusted, you know, kind of safe environment within which to with, within which to do that. Um, and so, you know, that that probably started to decline pretty seriously, you know, way before the Internet, right back to like the 50s or something when organized religion really started to decline. Um, but, um, you know, there is this new way of doing that now. Right. And there has been this, you know, in, in my you know, in the relatively recent past, quote unquote, Internet dating went from something that's like weird, scary and creepy. Uh, to something that's like absolutely mainstream and that, you know, huge numbers of relationships and marriages and children are being generated uh through all these different onla- online matches. And we do, we, yeah. <laughs> we give an example, which we just had our first uh, clubhouse marriage, um, you know, that I'm aware of, right. <laughs> which is like, you know, two people met on clubhouse and like then met in real life and then got married yeah. Um on clubhouse. <laughs> right. Um And so, you know, and, and yeah, look, you could argue that like, look, it's like, if this technology intermediated, it's going to be like, you know, I don't know, hyper-optimized or it's going to have the wrong criteria. It's going to, cause people to think there's too much choice or whatever but like it is nevertheless a way to do that matching um and it is a way to do that matching that for a lot of people is a superior way um and it is a it, and it is something that's actually playing out in large numbers and so you know i don't know I, it's not a refutation of your argument i just like it's maybe an argument for there is a there is a there is some silver lining on the other side also
0: yeah i mean there's a lot of you know there's a lot to this and you know whether we like it or not or whatever we think we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go through this experiment, so we'll see we'll see what happens I, uh, yeah
1: well, there's also just the the sociological uh, observation that the people who seem to be the most animated about the corrosive effects of the internet on our society seem to spend an awful lot of time on the internet talk, <laughs> right. talking about the corrosive effects of the internet on our society so yeah,
0: uh, yeah i yeah I don't know I mean the, the other uh no it's point taken i I just think yeah. I mean I don't want to come across as someone who hates technology, I think you know I sure think we, we don't give. Enough credit to Google and Amazon, and you know the uh, you know the knowledge at your fingertips and the entertainment options. Um, you know, I, it drives me crazy when people criticize Am- Amazon. When you know, I, I'm a regular user of Kindle, you know, uh, Prime, uh, Audible, right? Like, you know, a huge portion of my life is plugged into Amazon. Not mentioning you know getting things, and I, I just think it's, it's it's a good thing. Um, it, my my concerns are sort of very uh, are, are very narrow, while people have more sort of broader. I guess I guess human nature is changing and not not work and people aren't getting married and having kids i guess that's not that narrow <laughs> i guess that's a little bit more that's a little bit broader but it, it's not it's not all aspects of technology certainly um
1: just, well, the other thing yeah. if we want to spend a moment on that getting married having kids point so like look the other thing is like the, the getting married having kids thing you know is a problem again it's one of these problems that predates the, the internet right like you, you know this, right if, if you look or you tell, confirm for me this is right but basically, there's this broad pattern in the last 50 years that as societies across the world get wealthier, the birth rate drops. Yeah, is that's that fair that, to
0: say? That, that is true, although we have reached – new lows and sometimes you do uh you do see an uptick in certain places but generally yeah generally you're right it can it certainly can't be all blamed on the internet i think the better data that maybe you can blame on the internet is just the number of people who um, have had sex well this is uh, sex in the last year there's a sex session i don't know if that's directly correlated to how many kids you have you know you could you could be a virgin and then get married and then have a lot of kids but but there but there is some indication right. that people are just turning away from the idea of sex and relationships this particular this seems to be particularly bad in a place like japan which is you know sort of uh, a a place that's really uh, plugged into technology and video games and all that and you know the the numbers of virgins and people who don't want any relationships are uh, are sort of uh, off the charts so so you're right there is this thing called the demographic uh, transition um at the same time it's uh you know at the same time there does seem to be something a little bit different going on in the last you know 10 years or so
1: well, let, let me let me come at it. Let me blame something that's not the Internet for this. Right. Um, yeah, this is something we, we, we talk a lot about. So. Um, so what are the what are the traditional markers of, you know, you could use the term the American dream or you could use the term middle class or you could use the, you know, basically the concept of family formation. You know, the idea of two young people being able to come together, have kids and then be able to be in a setting that, you know, they, they believe is like, you know, basically high quality. Um, you know, what are, what are the big markers of that, at least in the U S and I would argue that there are, you know, three big components to that, right. There's housing, um, ability to, to, to have a house, have a home. Um, there's, uh, education, uh, which is the ability for the kids to have a, a great education. And then there's uh healthcare, right. Um, and you know, and basically if you, if you had basically plentiful quality healthcare education and housing, um, you know, number one, you'd, you'd be fully like realizing the American dream for more people, um, you know, you, you might also expect that maybe that would lead to an increase in both marriage rates and birth rates, um, because literally people would know that it was like, you know, basically practically and financially tractable, you know, to be able to do that, especially at a, at a younger age. Right. Like, for example, if the price curves on houses, uh, schools and hospitals uh, were going down at the same rate as the price curves on, you know, movies and TV shows and, um, you know, flat screen television sets. Right, I, I think we could probably agree that that would be positive on uh, on 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 this point.
0: You know, maybe. I mean, I I think it's more cultural than that. I mean, I think if you look at what predicts people have kids, there's actually probably a negative relationship between uh, sort of living standards and how many kids you have, and. You know, the few places that do have kids tend to be kind of religious community. I think, you know, if I, if I was okay. going to say why, why, if there, if I was going to say the internet had an effect or recent years have had an effect on a number of children, I would be more inclined to put it on sort of cultural, uh, political changes that I would be, uh, questions of affordability. I, I think that those, those are sort of second order concerns once values have shifted, right? I, I think the value shift is the more important thing.
1: Okay. Yeah, but then again, you'd have to. You'd, but then again, therefore, if it's the value shift more than anything material, then you'd also have to say. I would assume that the value shift predate, that value shift does predate the internet. The internet. It may have been accelerated by the internet, yeah. but it predates internet.
0: Yeah, it. that's what I would say. Yeah, I would say that, you okay. know, the the group. Like Zach Zach talks about the Great Awakening. Unquestionably, all the data is clear that the the way the media talks about uh, social and racial and gender issues and public opinion, obviously, just has a radical shift in the last twelve years. Yeah, I mean, this is stuff that's been happening since the nineteen sixties, but you see like a super acceleration. I think that's what people are most worried about when they want to talk about wokeness, whether you put some of that on the internet, you know, uh, none of it or all of it, you know, that, that, that's a question. Um, but yeah, anyway, so you, you brought up uh, education and um, you, you brought up education as you brought up the uh, education, healthcare as two places that could possibly be uh, disrupted. I think in your article on, um, on software eating, eating the world. Um how how optimistic are you on, on that? Because the way i look at education, you know, what I, I sometimes i i see people and they sort of i think have this sort of naive model. It's like, okay, you go to you go to school to learn something. Uh and you have to like travel to this place and listen to the professor. Oh, look, if you can just do it online, if you could just watch a video, um and then be graded online, you have no need for schools. So, and i think that sort of mis- you know, misunderstands the whole point of schooling, like you're not really learning anything, you're just signaling. And if it's an arbitrary symbol, you know, technology, its not, it doesn't matter if technology um, helps you do it better, right? Because it's not about doing it well, it's just about arbitrarily jumping through hoops. Um, and so that's why I, I think that, you know, there's just these ideas and these government regulations and these uh, systems of funding that sort of make education particularly difficult to, to disrupt. Um, but, you know, i I be open to ideas that I'd be optimistic if you told me that there was there was uh, another way to look at this and maybe it can be disrupted.
1: Yeah, so I guess I'd say, look, I I, I think I agree with a lot of that. Um, but I guess I would say this is I think the right way to think about education, consistent with what you just said. I think is education is a in the U.S. right now, education is a bundle, right? Um, and so, and just you know, take college as an example. You know, just take college as an example. You know, it's a bundle. So it's a bundle of, you know, in theory, skills and knowledge. Um, it's a bundle of a credential. Uh, it's a bundle of social status. Um, it's a bundle of daycare for young adults, <laughs> right? Uh, it's a place yeah. to park, you know, people who's, you know, people whose frontal lobes are still not fully developed. Um, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's, you know, they bundle housing in there. They bundle food in there. Um, uh, it's a social environment. It's a dating scene. Right. Um, you know, it's a, uh, you know, it's a place to act out <laughs> fancies of rebellion. Um, right. Um, and it's, it, it's a bundle of all those things. And I, and I think, you know, we're, we're basically, you know, we're basically dealing with the long-term consequences of just having like bundled all these, you know, all those things together and then pretending, you know, that it quote unquote is education, you know, pre- pretending that it then results in, I don't know, useful skills or the ability to live a better, better life or some such thing. Um, and so I think it's, it's very hard. And this is what, you know, the tech companies have found, which is like, it, this is kind of your point, which is it's very easy to technologically innovate in the means of like delivering instruction or testing or any of these other kind of components of the quote unquote educational process. Um, you know, it's much harder to go up against that bundle. Uh, right. And, and, you know, you, you could argue like the, the dominant thing in that bundle is actually the, the, the signaling, right, the, the social status. Uh, that results. Um and you know, this is the Brian Kaplan argument, uh, you know, which you often hear people talk about with like the sheepskin effect, right? Which is <laughs> somebody who somebody who completes seven eighths of Harvard um uh does not make seven eighths the money uh as somebody who graduates, right? They make half the amount of money as somebody who graduates, right? So either all the skills in education are being loaded into that last semester or, you know, it really is the diploma that is the you know signaling value as opposed to the actual skills. So so, you know, look, we, we this is this, you know, my, my X-Wing fighter is up against the, the Death Star kind of thing, which is, you know, kind of education startups coming out of tech, I think, run kind of continuously up against this, you know, bundler kind of matrix um, uh, of value. Um, and then all of the very heavily freighted societal implications and all of the, by the way, all the other heavily freighted also, you know, governmental policy, you know, aspects, right, like. You know, try to try to create a, a, a education startup that goes up against a system where the incumbents have access to unlimited federal student loan funding for free, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> talk about a hard challenge. Like, there's a hard challenge, right? Um, and so, look, I, th- I think that's all true. Um, uh, and 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 so, from that standpoint, I think you you know, at, at least in, in in our world, you want to be somewhat cautious about the degree to which you think this stuff can just be re- revolutionized through kind of a better you know a better user experience or something like that. Um, you know, look on the other hand. Um, you know, it was at Herbert Stein, I think, who said that uh, uh, the famous line was, if something can't go on forever, um, it will stop. Um, like, at some point, um, things just reach a level of absurdity. This goes back to our Uber discussion a little bit. Like, at some point, it's just absurd. At some point, it's absurd to stand on the corner like an idiot waving for a taxi cab yeah. uh, if you can just, like, punch up an Uber or Lyft. Um, at some point, it's just absurd um, to have your kid go, you know, spend $80,000 a year for four years To get indoctrinated in a fringe political cult, um, that results in basically being unemployable, right? Like, (laughs) like at some point, um, I I talked to, I talked to a friend of mine. Oh, God. Um, a friend of mine who's a, a, it's a well-known, uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneur, very successful, uh, very, by the way, left-wing. Um, and I was asking about his his kids and he's like, yeah, it's like my son, this, that, everything. He's like, yeah, my daughter. Yeah, my daughter went to Brown. Um, Now she's 25. She lives in Brooklyn. She stopped bathing, and she hates me. (laughs) 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 I was like, you know, I almost asked him, like, you know, who pays her credit card, and I I decided to stop the (laughs) conversation. I didn't want to get into it, right? And so, like, at some point, you know, it's just like, okay, like, really seriously, this is what we're doing, right? And at some point, as a kid, and of course, you know, we we see the other side of this in tech, like, you know, like in 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 tech, it's now kind of boomeranged around, where like. It's arguably a better credential in tech to have dropped out of Harvard than it is to have graduated,
0: yeah, right? Exactly. And,
1: and by the way, like Mark Zuckerberg, Harvard dropout, like Bill Gates, Harvard dropout, like there's, you know, a whole run of these.
0: Yeah. Right. When Peter um, Thiel was doing his TR fellowship for people, it was sort of seen as this huge eccentricity, right? That was what, 10, 20 years ago that you pay people to drop out of school? You're right now. Uh, that's fascinating the way you put it. It's a bigger, it's a better credential to have dropped out of Harvard and Silicon Valley than to have actually finished.
1: So the Teal Fellowship is super interesting because, like, and, and I would say, you know, as with a lot of stuff Peter does, like, even I, and I'm pretty open-minded on these things, even I was like, you know, really? Like, 19-year-olds? Like, and so basically, yeah, he paid a bunch of 19-year-olds basically to drop out of college, and then they all moved together into a group house in San Francisco, and then they were just basically told, go nuts. Yeah. Right? And, like, on the surface, you would just say, oh, my God, what are you doing? Like, you know, let's, let's hope that, you know, let's hope that 100% of them survive. Right. Um, you know, much less like, you know, and, and if you look at what that, it's a very small number of kids. Like it's one of the points Peter, Peter makes, by the way, is he's like, it wasn't that many kids. Like people, people really freaked out. Um, given the fact that it was like, I don't know, 20 kids or something. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he said that it gives you a sense of just how important all the social signaling status stuff is. That you know, the, the, the existing complex, you know, he calls the existing university system. He says they're the Catholic Church, you know, right prior to the Reformation, yeah. you know, and they're selling indulgences. And like they know full well what they're doing. They know they're corrupt. You know, they know their system is, is like broken. Um, and so, of course, they're going to like disproportionately panic at any indication that, you know, <laughs> they see Martin Luther walking down the street. They're going to freak out. Um, but anyway, like if you look at that cohort of kids and that is, they've been successful beyond belief. Like, so if you want to say Ethereum, right? Like, you know, Ethereum, it's a Ethereum $300 billion outcome uh, in 10 years at Teal Fellow. Uh, um, you know, Figma, a company we're, we're invested in extraordinarily successfully, revolutionizing basic, basically computer design, um, you know, Teal Fellow. And there's another like another, another dozen of these that are like these really spectacular breakthrough, uh, um, you know, these, these people are doing like just incredibly fundamental, important work. Um, you know, centered in tech, but of course it's centered in tech because that's where, where young people can do important breakthrough work these days. Um, and so it's like, okay, you know, there it is. Like, that worked. Right. And it, and it does kind of beg this question of like, OK, why are we not doing why are we not all doing that now at much larger scale? Like, you know, there's something there.
0: Yeah. Um, and I, think, um, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think being able to select 20 people who've heard yep. Peter Thiel and who want to do that, I think is, I think is the point. Yeah, I went, to law, I, mean, I went to law school at the University of Chicago. and I think it just showed me that even though you could have so many very, very smart people and they just it, it was I just felt like law school was for people who had no idea what else to do with their lives. And that was for me too. I didn't go to a great college. I didn't know what to do. And so, the, you know, that, that's what you know, that's what they were there for. So, yeah, I think maybe the selection is everything. You're right, but uh, yeah, you can encourage more or less of that. Not everybody can be can uh, uh, fund a rethrum, but, but I mean, you know, people can think about you know starting a hardware store instead of you know getting some worthless degree. I mean, I think that's realistic for people.
1: Yeah, well, so I think selection for sure is selection is a big part of everything. And so I, I totally can see the general point. I will say I'm sure it's not just twenty. Right. Like, I'm sure it's not two million, but I'm sure it's not 20. Yeah.
0: Well, even if, I mean, even if it's a thousand. I mean, yeah. yeah.
1: Like, how about that? Right. And by the way, it's like it's not like the class at Harvard. It's not like well, it's the Harvard undergraduate class. How many kids per year? they probably a couple thousand through two to four yeah. thousand right. freshmen a year. Like, that's not that big. And, like, you know, we load onto those kids the responsibility, apparently, for determining every aspect of how our society works. And so we're, we're making some selection there already. Um, and so, you know, and what's, and what's the total reporting staff of The New York Times? It's like 800. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so anyway, yeah, look, I, I think there's going to be so here's the way we think about it from a tech standpoint. It's like, look, you, you can't just, like, go flat up against the bundle. You can't do a frontal assault. On the on the Death Star, uh, like, and even if you could, and people have actually tried to like full on, you know, create new universities and so forth, but like you run up against the accreditation cartel, right? It's, it's one of these. It's the government regulatory capture thing we're talking about, right? The, the universities the universities are cartel. Uh, they're a government supported cartel, right? Um, and quite literally, they they are they're, they they access to federal student lending uh, is through the, the the accreditation process. The accreditation process is run by the incumbents. Right. Um, and so the government has delegated to these institutions the ability to decide who gets to compete with them. And of course, the answer is nobody gets to compete with them. Um, and so you have an almost perfect state of government. You sort of, and it, you know, these are nominally nonprofits, but, you know, you would never know it looking at their, uh, you know, looking at their cash flow statements. Um, and so, you know, it 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 is this like it is this like idealized, you know, basically, you know, stagnant entrenchment uh, of the status quo that is like, you know, extremely powerful. Um, and so. You're not going to frontal assault it. What you can do and what we're, we're doing is you, you can basically strip away pieces of it, right? So you, you can pull pieces out. And so you can, you can for sure pull out like the actual skills training part of it. Um, by the way, you can pull out, you can pull out the, you know, you can pull out, you can pull out the dating part of it, right? You can pull out the, um, you know, you can pull out a lot of the logistical components of it. You can pull out housing. You can pull out the food component. You can pull out a lot of the social setting stuff now. Um, and then, you know, then, then you get into the serious stuff. And of course the really serious stuff is, can you somehow sort of, can you recredentialize, right? Can, or can you figure out how to basically introduce new credentials, new forms of signaling and new forms of status, um, that are not just based on these, these legacy institutions. And that, you know, that's what a lot of the best new founders are focused on. So, yeah. you know. But, you know, any, any, it's just, it's, a, it's the X Wing Death Star thing. Any individual effort probably won't work, but if we run enough experiments over time and strip off enough pieces, I think we might be able to start having an impact.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe, I mean, another possibility, maybe this is, you know, I don't know if this is uh, more about business or it would have to be somebody who's more uh, philanthropically motivated. Uh, but, you know, if, you know, investing money in politics and changing the system. Um, a lot of people do that, but I've always actually been surprised at how little money there is in politics. I just looked up the 2020 presidential election, 14 billion, you know, was spent on that to to elect the president. That doesn't seem like all that much money. Um, and especially like some of this stuff is like very sort of technical. You just have to sort of capture the bureaucracy, get the right congressman to change things. Um, do people, I mean, do, do revolutionaries, you know, maybe they're emotionally overinvested in politics, but maybe financially um, and sort of strategically underinvested in politics. Does that does that make sense?
1: Yeah. So, yes. So for sure, just on the facts. And again, this is not a value judgment, but just on the facts, for sure, there's not nearly enough money in politics. Uh, exactly to your point. And it's just obvious in the arbitrage. Um, and you just think of it, just put your just pure finance hat on and you're like, okay, there's going to be some regulation that's going to cause there to be, you know, a hundred billion dollars in value either gained or lost, which is like not a crazy thing. Like that happens a lot. Um, and so it's like, what should you spend as an economic actor to either cause that hundred billion to, you know, to appear or vanish? Well, <laughs> you know, maybe not a hundred billion. Um, you know, but maybe it should be more than a million, right? Um, and you know, a lot of these things, when they happen, you go trace back the amount of money involved, the amount of money that was thrown at it by all these supposedly super powerful, you know, kind of, you know, pressure groups and so forth. Like it's just not that much money relative to the stakes, Right. Um, so yeah, so, you know, there, there probably should be a lot more money in politics the way the system is currently conceived. Um, you know, it should probably be, I'm going to guess a hundred to a thousand times more money than currently, and maybe more than that given the and of course the stakes keep rising right because the economy keeps getting bigger right and so the, the stakes keep rising um so it's something like yeah. that um now let me say let me let me say um i think tech i think we are the worst of everybody uh, at, 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 at 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 we i think the tech industry is the worst of every industry and in every field in engaging in politics um and i think that you know some of that is probably just like flat out arrogance but um i also think part of that is it, it goes back to this this selection point of like who's in tech um and the people who are in tech are you know basically right so so what is tech tech is the new fringe idea um who are the people who go after the new fringe ideas they are the new fringe people you know they are we are <laughs> iconoclastic we are disagreeable um you know we are utopian um you know we are you know we believe in you know first principles thinking we, we don't believe in reinventing the wheel we believe in you know, superseding the wheel with, you know, nuclear-powered spaceflight or something. Um, you know, if somebody says, here's how something has always been done, we say, well, then obviously we're not going to do it that way. Um, and, oh, and then the other thing with tech that's really interesting is every other industry other than tech stabilizes, right? So at some point, you just have a certain number of, like, movie, uh, uh, you know, production companies. You have a certain number of car companies. You have a certain number of oil companies. You have a certain number of universities, right? And and it's just it's it, 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 a certain number of banks. And the industry just, like, stabilizes. And then those things, you know, Ford, GM, and Chrysler for the last 100 years, right? <laughs> Repeatedly bailed out, but the same three companies. Um, and so at some point, these industries stabilize. And at some point, these industries, the people band together, you know, they get to know each other, they band together, and they form, you know, kind of industry associations, lobbying groups, the MPAA, and things like that. And then they start to exert serious political power. The, the problem in tech is by the time you get these companies to the point where they fully accept the nature of the challenge, and they are run by the kind of people who understand all this stuff, they're no longer relevant. Right. It's, it's some new set of people and some new set of companies where actually all the issues are. And then those people are again, these like super iconoclastic, disagreeable types that don't want to team up together and don't want to do the, the traditional thing. Mm-hmm. And so we in tech just like at my entire career, you know, for 30 years now, I've been watching this happen. Like we, we just, we, we so underpunch our weight uh, relative to any other industry. I, it's, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can also tell you, I've, I've concluded it's hopeless. Um, I have yeah. totally stopped spending time on it. I, I will not engage anymore. Um, because I will not have these conversations anymore with people where it's like, yeah, I know we should do this, but we're still not going to. Um, and so I I think it's just like, it's going to be our lot in life as an industry that we're just always going to be on the receiving end of this stuff more than we're on the giving end. And, and, and and look, that just like increases the pressure to like get the technology right and to actually like fly the, (laughs) fly the X-Wing fighter in the exact right, you know, kind of vector through the gap in the shields. Um, and so that's, that's what we're focused on instead.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm interesting to hear you say that you've sort of given up on, uh, tech ever being good at politics because i always i i thought your uh, your project the the website the a16z.com is it um where you have these you know sort of articles is, is a sort of way to sort of marry the tech industry with people who are maybe in journalism or the social sciences or the you know the the uh are sort of thought leaders who are more have a more tech positive view did you see the mission that way or am i getting that wrong
1: yeah, we touch on that. Um, uh, we, you know, we touch on that. We, so like our, it started with our podcast and now we have this big effort called future, uh, which is more like a, a publication, an online publication. Um, and so, um, yeah, we, we, we do touch on that. We have a fair number of policymakers, politicians, policymakers, um, who do read that stuff. Um, uh, <laughs> one of my claims to fame is my, my piece, uh, on, uh, it's time to build. Um, I got very complimentary messages back both from Kevin McCarthy um you know who's the leader of the house republicans um and he distributed it to his entire caucus and then um i also got a very nice note from psychot chakrabarty Uh who's the young uh, dsa activist who created aoc
0: interesting
1: (laughs) so i I don't know i either did something very right or very wrong (laughs) um but you know look they you know they read that you know i don't know oh my my biggest claim to fame on this stuff probably is uh Dominic cummings gives me credit for um uh the um the slogan of the conservative party and Boris Johnson about a year and a half ago, right before COVID was uh build, build, build. Oh, okay. um, and, and Dominic credits me for my, uh, my, my, my essay on that. So, um, so, so anyway, um, you know, look, there's some of that and we'll do what we can. And look, we have various efforts underway. You know, there's and we're, like in particular, we're getting increasingly politically engaged in crypto because those issues are getting very heated. That you know, that's actually a big issue this just this week. You know, so we have people in our firm who are working on this hard and, and um, you know, we're, we're going to support them in doing it. I just think this is not, yeah for the reasons i already described this industry is not going to solve its problems um of, of dealing with regulation of government through political activity. like it's just it's not going to be the main solution it's the tip of the spear is going to be technological change um, or it's not going to work
0: yeah, that's I mean that, that's all fascinating. So, yeah, mindful of your time, Mark. I, I know you're busy. Um, let me just ask you um just uh, as a close uh what are you what are you excited about in America? I I heard you say you're optimistic about it. Uh what what's, what's your I guess what's your uh what's your optimistic story of where we go the next 20, 30 years? Give me your pessimistic uh uh scenario and maybe give me a median median uh scenario if you can
1: yeah, so let'll start the, the pessimistic and I don't know if, I don't know if I'm an original thinker here on this one, but the pessimistic scenario is the pessimistic scenario is just simply lack of energy and lack of will, right? And so the pessimistic scenario is just simply, you know, we could do all these things, but we just can't be bothered. right? And, and you could you know it's the whole discussion we had, you could blame it on you know you know <laughs> anything from Netflix to the collapse of religion, any any you know lack of kids, people not having kids. You know, there's lots of possible causes of this, but like what, whatever those causes are. It's just this like, you know, this feeling of just like, you know, we could do these things, but instead we're not going to, we could do these things instead. We're just going to complain all the time. You know, we could do all these things, but instead we're just going to, you know, whatever, have our government jobs or have our UBI. You know, or have our, have our long COVID disability checks or whatever the new you know way of delivering, you know, kind of government, permanent government benefits is going to be. Um, uh, I chuckle because, like, we don't even know if long COVID is actually even a real thing and already we're going to have government benefits for it. Right. So. Yeah. Um, right. And so it's just going to be like, you know, probably Tyler Cohen's like complacency thesis or something. It's just like we just can't be bothered. We, we could, but we're not going to. Um, you know, look, the optimistic case is, you know, every single day, you know, um, you know, we go to work, (laughs) used to be in the office, now it's over the internet, but like we go to work every day, um, in our, in our business. And like, we meet with the sharpest, you know, young, aggressive, hungry, ambitious, innovative, creative people I could possibly imagine. Right. And like, they are so sharp (laughs) and they are so competent. Um, and they are so driven and I'll just give you like, they're so much better than I was, and they're so much better than my cohort was uh, when I was their age. Um, they're just like way more advanced. You know, They know a lot more about what they're doing than I did at that age, right? And that, that I think is a direct payoff from the internet because they just like, <laughs> they go on the internet, they can learn all this stuff. Um, and they come in with these just like absolutely spectacular ideas. And they come in with like the ability to recruit and you know be able to like build these amazing new products and be able to wedge into these markets. And they've got all these creative ways to overcome all these problems that you and I've been talking about. And like, and they just keep coming. Like, it's just wave after wave after wave of like the it's like the, the most exciting video game in the world. Um, and, and like I said, look, you know, a lot of them, it won't work out. But for the ones that it will work out, like, you know, you can now get these, you know, you can just have there. there are these fundamental breakthroughs. And there are these just like, titanically important, both technologies and companies that come out of this process. Um, and you know and, and increasingly by the way, cross cutting into way more sectors of the economy uh, you know than than when I was a kid, so you know we're, we're becoming more kind of systemically relevant um and so it's just this unending supply of these just you know spectacular kids basically um and so it it, it is at the end of the day it it is hard to argue against that for me.
0: Okay, great. So, Mark, you you make you make the good case for optimism. I mean, you you felt
1: semi semi optimism.
0: (laughs) I think, yeah, I think there's I think we have um, I don't know whether you're optimistic, people are optimistic or pessimistic. I think we I think the pessimism market is pretty saturated. I think that's most of what we get. And so it's good to just hear the you know, the case that people aren't making enough. So yeah, it's been great, Mark. I mean, it's been a great conversation. You know, uh, thank you for this. It's great having you on. Good, fantastic. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate it.